we've been presented with a God who looks like, looks like these, the captors who've held us hostage and frightened us to, uh, to death. And the only way we've survived is to manage some kind of cognitive dissonance where we somehow align with this genocidal maniac we call God in order to be able to survive psychologically and hopefully get to heaven if we're good guys. And then along comes materialistic scientism and atheism telling us there is no God whatsoever. There is no transcendence. When you die, you croak that dead lights out. Now the people who are allegedly going to free us from this maniacal God are worse. They're giving us meaningless world. You know, uh, there, there is no such thing as consciousness or the soul or an afterlife. And now we're caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today's guest is Father Sean O'Larry, PhD. Father Sean was ordained a Catholic priest in 1972 and spent 14 years working in Kenya, during which he published his first book, written in Swahili. He has a master's and a doctoral degree in transpersonal psychology and is a licensed clinical psychologist in private practice, as well as the author of five other books, his latest being Setting God Free. Sean is the co-founder and spiritual director of a non-denominational community called Companions on the Journey, based in Palo Alto. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a warm review at the top of the show page on Spotify or at the bottom of the show page if you are listening on Apple Podcast. Your opinions matter and your ratings help us to grow and help more people to be healthy, find freedom of body and mind, and to live their dreams. And now here is Paul with Father Sean O'Leary discussing setting God free. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, we are going to talk about a very important title, Setting God Free, with Sean O'Leary. Sean, how do I pronounce your last name correctly? Because it's spelt different than I normally see O'Leary. You did it brilliantly. Olera. Olera. Yeah, my mother tongue is Gaelic, so that's the Gaelic fashion. So in English, it would be O'Leary, spelled differently. Do I use the Gaelic spelling and pronunciation? Right. Because yeah. I noticed it was spelled differently, so I didn't want to torture it. Okay, no, you did brilliantly. Thank you. So, first, I'll say, Sean, welcome, and um, it's very exciting for me to have you here. I'd like to let the audience know what it was that inspired me to track you down, and that is for everybody listening. I love Regina Meredith's show, Open Minds, and I watch it regularly, and I keep an eye on it. And as soon as I saw the write-up on Sean, I immediately knew from, from with every fiber of my being, I've got to hear what this man has to say. And your interview with Regina blew my mind, and I'll tell you why. Because I felt like you and I... We're drawing inspiration, ideas, and concepts and experiences from the same archetypal source. Because as I shared with you, I'm in the middle of writing a very large book. Yes. I'm about 750 pages into it now, and I still got about eight chapters to go. And it is a book on the 10 principles that I think we all need to understand to live and love fully and understand our spiritual growth process. And the number of things you talked about on that show that were exactly what I've written in my book. And now that I've been reading your book, I'm like, this is unbelievable. I mean, it's like me and Sean 
must have some kind of soul connection because we see the world very similarly. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of great stuff in your book that's not in mine, which is even more exciting because you're giving me different vantage points and some really beautiful concepts. And I'll tell you for the listeners, if you just read the preface of Sean's book, that's enough to just sell you right there. Just the preface lays it out beautifully. So I got to congratulate you for an absolutely stellar book. But what what I want to share with the audience about you, and, and we're going to have you expand on this, but Sean has been a Catholic for 73 years and a priest for 48. He majored in pure mathematics and mathematical physics. He spent eight years in a seminary studying philosophy scripture, theology, and completed a PhD in transpersonal psychology, which to me is the most important branch of psychology. He's practiced and is, as a licensed psychologist in California for the past 25 years, has lived in multiple countries around the world for long periods, while also mastering six languages. So, Sean, when I saw and read and listened to you speak with Regina, that was extremely evident that you have a very well-rounded, diversified knowledge base, a lot of life experience, and your honesty about not only Christianity and the Bible and religion is something that is extremely rare. So I just first want to say namaste to you, Sean. Thank you so much for what you are giving to the world because you are living, breathing medicine. Namaste to you, my brother. Thank you. In the re interview with Regina Meredith, you shared a nice overview of your background, how you became a priest, your work in foreign countries, and I believe in Kenya, helping the natives get water. I'd love it if you could give the listeners sort of the Reader's Digest of, of who you are. How did you come into this? What brought you to become a priest? I'd love for them to really kind of get a sense of who's talking to us because I think your story is really beautiful. Great. Thanks, Paul. And so I'm the firstborn of a firstborn of a firstborn in Ireland. <laughs> so my father was the firstborn in his family. His mother was the firstborn in her family and I'm the firstborn in this family. So um, I have an uncle, Noel, who's, six, who's uh, two months younger than me. I was born in October. 1946, and he was born in December 1946, and so he was the last of my father's family. So uh, his mother, who was my grandmother, persuaded my mother to give me up as a kind of a companion to her last-born child just for a few days, and this few days lasted for six years. <laughs> so I was raised with my uncle. You know, part of my dedication in the book is to my uncle Noel because we were raised almost like twins, uh, and. Um, my great grandmother was living there as well, and she was like a Christian mystic. For her, uh, Mother Mary was more real than you are to me, and she would have these out loud conversations with Mother Mary, to which I was privy. And I presumed that this was the norm that you get to talk to these avatars and these saints, you know, just at the other side of the veil. And the veiling is in Gaelic we call it a highlights, which means a thin place. It means a location or a person or a time when the veil between the mystical and the mundane is diaphanous, you know, and yes. there's an exchange between the two sides. 
So I'm, I'm privy to this you know, every day of my life for the first six years. I thought this was the norm. Yeah. That's be- beautiful. I'll just, for the audience, the word diaphanous, diaphanous means see-through, transparent, uh, something that you can move through, like a, 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 the glass window in your house is diaphanous. Right, right. Thanks for this. Thanks, Paul. So then at age six, I'm given back to my parents. And I live with uh, my other grandparents, including my maternal grandfather, who I call Daddy Jim. And Daddy Jim was a druid in a kind of a... Oh, um, wow, cool. I mean, he's not part of a, an order or a group, but he was, he was a brilliant musician. He was a consummate Irish step dancer. Yeah, he was a great storyteller. So he filled me up with all the great Irish mythology. Going way, way back to, you know, what we call the, the Red Branch, Branch Knights, Cuchulain, Fionn McCool, you know, Niamh Kiroir, all these extraordinary characters going way back before Christianity. And so I got to kind of mesh these two systems, a kind of a pre-Christian, pagan, shamanistic spirituality through Druidism, and then a kind of a mystical Christianity from my great-grandmother. So these two fused in me. And so that had a huge bearing subsequently on the rest of my life, including my seminary training and my time in Africa. So I don't want, if you want me to move further into that topic, I can. Well, yes, but before you do, I have a question. You must be familiar with Cernanos. Yes, yes, yes. That's kind of more the Welsh Celtic version. Yeah. I got to show you. Here is a sculpture of Cernanos. Yes. That I have on my desk. And I have a bigger, I have a bigger one over in my reading chair. Serenos is a spirit guide to me. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. And, and you know, it was interesting because I had sent you my mandala that I painted for 2022 with the Celtic knot. And as I was yes. reading your book, that was right in the introduction. And I'm like, wow, this is this is like these synchronicities between me and you keep popping up. I was just cracking up as I was reading your book. I'm going. That must have been interesting for him for me to send him that before I'd even read him his read his book. <laughs> Good, I felt like we were we were bonded at the soul level when I got when I got that talk. <laughs> That's it, so cool. Certainly came yeah. going from the same source with the capital S. Yeah, oh yeah, we're gonna get into that too. But yeah, I want you to please continue and tell us the whole story about how you got into the priesthood. I wanna hear, you know, what happened to you and and you know, you're certainly not the normal priest. You're much more along the lines of a Matthew Fox, but somehow he got kicked out and you didn't. So I want to know how that is. Well, I have bad news for you. I did. <laughs> oh, did you? <laughs> that means you were really telling the truth. <laughs> Let me give you the kind of the interim piece and then the kind of the, uh, I, have, um, I have a great posture for getting kicked out of places. I've been kicked out of places. <laughs> That's well, great. Every- Every 10 or 15 years, some group disowns me. Uh, Fortunately, I got kicked out of Kenya after 14 years because of stances I was taking on social justice. Uh, I spent the the most unhappy year of my life, the year after I got kicked out of Kenya, living in London. And then I came to the States, uh, and I was part of the the Diocese of San Jose, working there as a priest uh, for about eight years. And then they kicked me out because of my theology. And finally... (laughs) On the 4th of October in 2010, I got a two-page letter in Latin from the Vatican telling me they no longer required my services because of my loss of faith and my disobedience. And that's really, <laughs> the only way I could exercise my priesthood was that if I came across someone who was dying 
and there was no other real priest there to shrive him, give his confession, and offer him absolution, and I could fill in. So I'm still waiting for a car accident for that situation to happen. Well, uh, the fortunate thing is, Sean, since COVID began, there's plenty of people dying. So I think you should just be praying all the time. (laughs) So they they obviously didn't realize there was work for you. Right. Let me fill in the gaps then to kind of uh, answer your first question. So from age, uh, from birth to age six, I'm living with my paternal grandparents and my great grandmother on that side at her, her Christian mysticism. And then I get moved over to the other side. My maternal grandparents with Daddy Jim, this druid, druidical character. And I had him for the next four years. And then maybe the worst year of my life in uh, at age 10, 1956, my great grandmother died in June of 1956, and my grandfather, Daddy Jim, died in December of 1956. So I lost the two great, the huge influences in my life in one six-month period. Wow, uh, that's painful. It was really, really painful, really painful. So I got to grade school and high school, um, and then I did, for the last two years in high school, I knew I wanted to be a priest, but I was really embarrassed about it because I was a real I was a real jock in school. I was a real sportsman, excelled at uh, an Irish game called hurling. If you've ever seen it, it's the actually fastest uh, field sport in the world. Stayed 15 aside on a huge big pitch, which is about 150 meters long, with a stick that looks like a hockey stick and a ball that looks like a baseball, which is traveling at 100 miles an hour. And we wore no protection. Now they're wearing uh, helmets, but at that stage we didn't wear any protection. So I was really embarrassed about wanting to be a priest. So I never told my, my schoolmates or my parents. But about three months before I was to join the seminary, which would have been in uh, June of 1964, and just finishing high school, and the seminary authorities tell me that I need to do a full physical and show that you know I'm fit, you know, physically for priesthood. So I need to do a doctor's check. Now we were a very poor family. I didn't have money. You know, I never got any pocket money as a kid growing up. So I go to my mother. I said, uh, I need ten shillings which is about the equivalent of like two or three dollars at the time. And she says, why do you need 10 shillings? I say, I, I need to go to the doctor. You need to go to the doctor? What's wrong with you? I said, there's nothing wrong with me. If there's nothing wrong with you, why are you going to the doctor? And then I say, well, I'm actually going to join the seminary in three months' time and they need a full physical. So that's how I broke it to them. Mm-hmm. So then September comes around and I joined the seminary and spent the next uh, eight years. Um, studying philosophy, um, scripture, history of the church, the social, social development, those kind of things. And then at age 26, you know, I'm, I'm let loose on Africa. And the idea being that I was going to go and kind of convert dark Africa to the light of Christianity and save all these souls and you know, get them ushered into heaven. And within two or three months of getting there, I was like, I was recreating the Celtic mythology that Daddy Jim had filled me up with as a little child. Literally, Thank God. The, <laughs> the, the, the Middle East, like the time of Jesus, because it's part of the Rift Valley. The Rift Valley goes all the way from Tanzania and Kenya right up through uh, Israel. And so the terrain looked exactly like it. And so I could just imagine uh, uh, what it was like for Jesus where in his times and his location. And uh, I come across the people for whom spirituality is not just a Sunday 
service affair where you you know go to the church in 45 minutes you fulfill your Sunday obligation and then you're free for the rest of the week. There was a spirituality which was very nature-based, which is exactly as a um, Celtic shamanism is. The greatest virtue in the Celtic system is love of and respect for nature. And so I was feeling it now again in Africa. And so I fit right in there. And then what I began to see was that my job was not one of conversion from, you know, paganism to Catholicism. It was the cross-fertilization of two wisdom traditions. So I'm a fan of Carl Jung's notion of the Gnostic intermediary. Jung believed that. Uh, somebody who's really conversant with two different wisdom traditions or two different cultures, you know, can be a conduit for them to cross-fertilize so that there's a mutual benefit goes on. And I saw that as my job is to share a kind of a Celtic, mystical, Christian tradition from Ireland with the uh, shamanistic traditions of East Africa. And then that both of us, uh, the people I was living among, and I could both evolve and develop you know, through the cross-fertilization of these wisdom traditions. And so that was my focus. Now, I was involved in a lot of kind of uh, particular outlets for that. I was a headmaster of a high school for a few years. Um, I ran a hostel for physically disabled children, mainly who had polio. Um, I was developing water projects, agricultural projects, um, community-based healthcare. Uh, I taught mathematics and physics in, in high school. So... There were many, many outlets for that, but basically for me it was just the hybridization of two wisdom traditions talking to each other. What what led you into your study in mathematics and physics? Because I it's very unusual to find somebody with the combination of psychology, mathematics, physics, and theology like you have. So for some reason or other, it must have been a past life. From the time I was a little boy. The three great loves of my life were science, psychology, and spirituality. Uh, and I attempted to try to weave those into a Celtic knot. You know, unconsciously, it wasn't I was doing this consciously. But they were, that's where I got attracted to. So in high school, yeah, I, mean, I was a really good student. But uh, I was particularly good at mathematics you know, and mathematical physics. So when I got to college, that's the track I took as well. Um, I had kind of absorbed mysticism from my great-grandmother. You know, and uh, religion and spirituality from my Catholic tradition and from my um, uh, seminary training. And in the seminary, then I'm exposed to uh, theology and philosophy. Uh, and so now I get a chance to consciously try to interweave these three pieces. Uh, and so that's that's actually what I attempt to do in this book, to see if there's some way of creating a Celtic knot uh, based on spirituality as distinct from religion, on um physics, quantum mechanics particularly, which is a mystical form of, uh, of physics, and then um, psychology, which is divorced from behavior, mere behavioralism. Uh, to go back to the real meaning of psychology, which is the Greek means literally the study of the soul. So the notion of modern psychology that you can divorce the soul from psychology, you might as well try to divorce you know, humans from anthropology. Anthropology means the study of human beings, anthropos, you know? Yes. So trying to divorce, you know, humans from anthropology is the same as trying to divorce the soul from psychology. So that's been my focus then, see, if I can weave these three um, into a Celtic knot. Well, you, you have, and it's a perfectly balanced knot, I must say. So you've also got your 
sailing credentials as a sailor if you're not. <laughs> okay. um, you know, it's interesting, too, that you got a degree in transpersonal psychology. What led you to transpersonal psychology and, and what made you want to get a degree in psychology? Is, is I'm very interested in hearing that. So uh, in the time I lived in Kenya, I lived in very remote areas on the edge of the Baringo Desert, you know, and um, the the last mission I was in was a little place called the uh, Kipsarman, literally means the place of the twins. You know, and the peoples I lived with, they had been nomadic pastors for thousands of years. But after um, independence from Britain in December of 1963, the government was trying to forcibly settle its nomadic populations into kind of uh, horticulturalists or agriculturalists, and they had no background. So there were nomadic pastors. So I'm living with people who live basically in tiny little villages. And a village is basically an extended family system. And so um, we had no we had no artificial light. I had a generator in the mission because I had a, a hospital there. I had a convent of Irish sisters there. You know, I had a high school, a, a grade school. You know, and so uh, during the day, we're powering the system. At night, I'm living by candlelight. Uh, so I lived right on the equator. So literally, we had 12-hour days, 12-hour nights. Now, being wow. an Irish, there's no way I could go to bed, go to bed at uh, 6 p.m. at night. So I'd, I'd use candles, and I used it to study and to research. So I came across a guy, uh, a union analyst who was also uh, an Episcopalian priest, a guy called John Sanford. And I devoured wow. writings, and through him got into union psychology. Uh, and when I finally got kicked out of Kenya, and I spent a year in London studying union psychology and hypnotherapy, I wrote down and I said, I really want to do a PhD in something that honors the spirituality of psychology. So he recommended me to a school in California, which at that stage was called the Californian Institute of Transpersonal Psychology. So I'm familiar with the school. Actually, one of my students recently graduated from there. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. Great school. And so I wound up in California because of that. Uh, and uh, pursued the PhD then in, in transpersonal psychology, which you know recovers the soul, puts the soul back into into psychology. So that was the connection with the transpersonal element. And and so you're you've been now for quite a long time working as a psychologist and using transpersonal psychology as your is that your primary living? Right, it is yes. And so um, I when I finished my PhD, I did a two year um, internship and then do the, my board certified, uh, uh, as a psychologist in California. So I'm registered in California as a clinical psychologist. Uh, but my, my focus in psychology is always a union or a transpersonal model, which honors the physical, the emotional, the mental, the social, the spiritual, and the creative. So they're kind of the basic six elements of uh, transpersonal psychology. That you're not just dealing with somebody's emotional issues, you know. You have to factor in the society which is is a part, the, the upbringing, the background, the psychodynamics of it. You know, you have to factor in the, the physicality, the emotionality, the intellectuality, the personality. If you're attempting to be of any benefit at all to somebody who is uh, trying to evolve psycho spiritually, so for me, then yeah, yeah, go ahead, Paul. Oh, I'm just. I'm just saying, yeah, that's very interesting. I'm grateful that you do that because to me that 
my personal opinion is you can't do honest psychology any other way. Right. I mean, you know, when I see what's going on in the name of behavioral psychology yes. and some of these other branches, it's really, you know, behavioral psychology is really more, when, when I studied B.F. Skinner and B, I took a university course that basically gave you a comprehensive overview of like all, all sorts of branches of psychology. There's probably 12 or 15 of them. And I've studied various types like biopsychosocial medicine and things like that. But uh, as I was reading B.F. Skinner's work, I was, I was the thought that kept running through my head is this is exactly how my father trains animals. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> And as you, know, as you know, of course, he, he borrowed his theory from uh, from Pavlov and his dogs. Exactly. Um, a question that popped into my head that I didn't plan on asking you, but sometimes things rise up that I have to go with. What percentage of Catholic priests do you think actually truly believe the standard Christian Bible story as it's taught in churches versus people that are maybe have evolved beyond it, but for whatever reason, just stay and keep playing the game. I would say that any any Catholic priest who's awake realizes the difference between mythology and historicity. Now, they're both very important, but it's important to realize that the Bible is not a book. You know, the Greek name for it is Tabiblia, which means the books. So in the Catholic version, there are 73 books. In the Protestant version, there are 66. But when you read through it, they're composed of many totally different genres of literature. You have some history in it, you've got theology in it, you've got letters from Paul in it, you've got revelation, you've got riddles, you've got uh, poetry, uh, and so you've got all these different types mixed in, and you can't pretend to read each part of the Bible with the same mindset. The example I give, if somebody gets a Sunday newspaper and they take it in, there's a gardening section, there's a movie section, there's a foreign news section, there's a financial system, you know. You can't read each section of the newspaper with the same mindset. You're not going to read the characters with the same mindset that you read the finances. So you're unconsciously shifting mindsets when you're going from section to section. But people presume that you can take the Bible, crack it open to any page you like, read it, and interpret it accurately, not having a clue what the genre is, what time period it came from, how it was redacted, how it, was, how it came to the personalities of people who recorded the stories. So you have to have a, a sense of the historicity, the the, um, the sociological influences that went into the formation at different stages, the redacting that went on, the mythology which created hero figures which may not have been uh, factual at all, like Moses. Moses is not a factual character. Moses is a, a mythological character, and he may well be the most important fictional liberator of all time. The fact that um, that something is a fiction does not mean it's not inspirational. We draw a lot of our inspiration from fictitious characters. So a fiction, the purpose of real fiction is to create heroes and heroines in order to draw from us and the archetype of liberation. You know, And so I would say for the average Catholic priest, they're not going to go deeply enough into it because we've selected out Portions of the Bible, which we offer to the faithful on Sundays, a kind of um, a sanitized version of the Bible, where we ignore what are called the difficult passages. And the difficult passage is a genocidal maniac. And so on a day-by-day -day basis, 
you're bathing in a, in a kind of a diluted, sanitized version of what the scriptures, you know, have recorded. And so it's easy for priests even, you know, to get behind a sanitized version, you know, and not go back into the original and realize there's something radically different, you know, with the taking this as the word of God. In what sense? That, yeah, yeah, mythologically speaking or um, uh, mystically speaking, but not literally speaking. But most people think, you know, grab it, read it, that's what it means. There's a saying I teach all of my students. The pain is seldom where the actual problem is. For example, I've seen many cases of rotator cuff problems that wouldn't heal even after surgery. But what most doctors and therapists overlook is that the right shoulder is under influence from the liver and the left shoulder the stomach. Once we apply the principles of detoxification, support digestion, and clear parasites, presto, shoulders start healing and working beautifully again. If you learn to see people holistically, like I teach my students in Holistic Lifestyle Coaching Level 1, you begin to see the true source of our illnesses and injuries. HLC 1 teaches you many essential approaches to health and well-being, such as how to assess what key body systems are under too much stress and how to restore balance, the importance of identifying a realistic dream goal or objective that inspires each individual to stick to their healing program and make the short and long-term changes that are necessary, my universally applicable 1-2-3-4 formula for assessing and correcting challenges, how to breathe optimally to enhance energy levels and mental clarity, how to use gentle movements to work in and enhance life force energy and support optimal immune function, how the function and health of the soil that food is grown in influences all systems of the body, including our mental-emotional stability, and much more. HLC1 is just a small part of what we teach our Czech Academy students, our education system for elite trainers and health professionals. Gavin Jennings and I designed the academy to take you from wherever you are right now, even if you have no fitness or health education, to being one of the best holistic health and performance professionals on this planet. And as a Czech Academy student, you'll be able to help a lot of people reach their health goals in ways you never imagined. There is, in my opinion, nothing more rewarding and meaningful in life than helping other people look, feel, and live better. We are now accepting applications into the Czech Academy, so whether you're wanting to change your career or add a truly effective new dimension to your current skill set, now is the time to apply. Go to chekinstitute.com forward slash L number 4D Academy. That's chekinstitute.com forward slash L4D Academy. Let's make the world a better place together. Joseph Campbell describes four levels of scriptural interpretation from the least effective to the most. And if I can remember right, the first one's literal translation. The second one's ethnocentric, my group, my group's interpretation. The third one is um, allegorical. And the fourth is inspirational. He says the inspirational level of interpretation is the highest quality. The problem is as you know, the Orthodox religions are all at the literal interpretation level, which is why Joseph Campbell says, whenever a connotation becomes a dictation, you're in trouble. Absolutely. Brilliant. Brilliantly put. And that for me is the basic reason why Jesus, whom I regard as the greatest teacher of all time, insisted on using stories and parables. And there's a great passage in, in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 13, where he's interrogated twice by the audience, you know, and asked, why are you always talking stories? Why do you speak plainly to us? 
And the first time he was asked, he said, I speak in stories or in parables so that I may reveal things which have been hidden since the foundation of the world. In other words, some truths are so deep that the only way you can work with them is in parabolic form, allegory, metaphor, story, uh, um, proverb. And the second time he was asked the same question, you know, we complained before, you know, why are you using parables and stories? Speak plainly to us. Why are you using stories? And he said, I speak in stories so that seeing you may see, but not understand, hearing you may hear, but not comprehend. So what? Why would he do that? Because he's saying, if you're just listening with your ears and try to unpack it with your with your rational mind, you're not going to get it. Because now you're you're talking literalism, or as you say, you're talking about ethnocentric versions of it, or tribal versions of it, you know. I'm speaking to you about mysticism, the inspirational element of it, and you can't grok the inspiration either with your, your rational mind or with your sensorium. And so you need to shift your kind of state of consciousness in order to engage with the material. So I'm not going to make the mistake of thinking I can articulate a mystical teaching in a literal, you know, rational format. So we need to go trans-rational. And that's very different from uh, irrational. So yes, I think it is. To really grok the mystical message, you have to go trans-temporal. You have to step outside of time. You have to go transpersonal. You have to stop identifying with the, the, the little ego inside me. You have to go transpatial. You're bigger than this even physical cosmos of ours and transrational, which is you can't depend on your little brain, this little three-pound mass of wetware that I carry between my ears to be able to allow you to understand the mystical message. But most people aren't there or aren't prepared to do the work to get there. And so they're Amen. going to... Their default position is literalism or even at best ethnocentric interpretations. Yes. So you know, the, the something came to my mind while you were talking that I want to share with you. Are you familiar with the Hindu philosopher sage Shankara? Yes. Yes. He wrote the book, The Crest Jewel of Discrimination. Okay. Or somebody wrote it with his teachings because he was a long time ago. Shankara says... No man can understand scripture until he's enlightened. And when he's enlightened, he does not need scripture. <laughs> and, and so the reason I bring that up, because I'm leading to something else here, is that one, I, I would hate to even guess what percentage of people teaching in Sunday schools are enlightened, but it's almost non-existent, which means right off the bat, they're getting a recapitulation of the dogma that was infected upon them and putting that into the kids. In my library, which is quite comprehensive, someday I'd love to show it to you. There's about 5,000 books in there, wow. all good ones that I right. collected from all over the world, yeah. sometimes at great expense. Um, I've got a book by a psychologist. It was probably written in the late 60s, early 70s. It's about 500 pages. And that book is a collection of all the cases where he found people were psychologically damaged by going to churches and being read the Bible and believing it. And he, he has a warning in the beginning of the book to all parents that no children should be exposed to the Bible until they're at least 18 years of age and have developed enough of an ego structure to have discernment to protect them from the kinds of problems that he has case history after case history. And, and you know, I, I don't want to give the wrong impression that I think 
the Bible's bad or the devil. I just think for all the reasons that you've been mentioning, it's so complex and it has so much dark stuff and so much mythological and allegorical information that if you don't have the depth of understanding to to actually see that one of the things these are is they're not stories that we're supposed to repeat. They're stories about the kinds of things that happen to people that live in ways that lead to these kinds of problems. Exactly. Exactly. But, you know, for example, if God is love, then the idea of being afraid of God is a kind of a contradiction in terms. So when you read the Old Testament, it's very easy to see why kids can be scared to death of God. And I, you know, I'm quite practiced at working in other dimensions, and I've had to work with many people that are caught in the in-between realm in the astral plane because they're afraid to go to the light, because they're so afraid God's going to burn them in hell. So they're hovering out in this inner, inner, in-between realm. Like and they're ghosts. They're they're stuck there because they they can't come back to a body and they can't go back to source to to move on in their evolution. And I've worked with many cases like this, and it's 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 very sad and very concerning to me because you know I don't you're the last guy in the world I need to tell that this type of conditioning is used to control people's minds and it keeps them in a very dangerous relationship with God. And because of the way they're imprinted with all these um, list of sins and commandments that are very, very hard for anybody to live, they end up with so much guilt and shame that their sense of self-esteem and self-worth gets very diminished and they never really, and you know, and this is where the source of a lot of neurosis comes from because they are, as Jung says, a neurosis is an adaptive crisis. And if a lot of people didn't have a neurosis, they'd probably commit suicide. And so when you look at the, the ill health psychologically, physically, emotionally, and mentally of the average person in the world today, as COVID brought right to the surface, and you then look at how many of these people have been indoctrinated either into Christianity, Islam, Judaism, or any of the major religions, but weren't taught by enlightened people. I'm watching the pressure of the environment push all the unconscious up to the surface that many of them don't have the support to deal with, which is exactly what happens, as I'm sure you know, when people start getting into plant medicines and they don't know what they're getting into, you know, a little bit of LSD or some mushrooms is a great way to meet the devil inside of you. You might meet God, but you'll also meet the devil and you don't ever know who's going to show up. <laughs> and if you're not equipped to in engage either of them, they can both scare the hell out of you. Absolutely. Yeah. Scare the heaven out of one and scare the hell out of the other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, if you meet God, then the power of the encounter is such that you feel that you're, sense of self your ego is being dissolved and if you're not ready for a, a, a death like that then you're gonna run like a chicken with its head cut off yeah. and if you meet the devil then you're not gonna like the part of yourself that you're projecting out as the devil in front of you and that can scare you away so the the problem is is that <clears throat> we've now got a god that's as scary as the devil and a devil with the power of a god and, and that puts people in a really tricky situation 
which is why I think somebody with your knowledge, skill, and experience, I mean, we need to figure out how to put you in a 3D printer and breathe into your <laughs> nostrils because honestly, there is a, a you know, I'm, I was so, I mean, I was overjoyed really. Like I told so many people about your inter interview with Regina. I mean, I, I said, you've got to hear this man. This, this guy's got to be on CNN. He needs to be on major network news because there's finally somebody with the understanding of the Bible and the history of religion and mythology and all the relevant sciences to, to bring some common sense into this so people aren't lost and scared to death with what they're also paradoxically trying to love, which is a dangerous position to be in. It's like being in love with someone that beats you up every day. Yes, yeah. I mean, religion has been domestic abuse. You're absolutely right, Paul. So I, I'm sure you're aware of the um, the famous Stockholm Syndrome, where yes. in the 70s, uh, four, four guys walk into a bank and held hostages, and they're surrounded, and the stand standoff went on for about a week. And, and then finally, the police broke in, uh, captured uh, the uh, the bad guys, uh, but the hostages refused to uh, give testimony in the court proceedings. Now, there are two reasons for that, it seems to me, that they had been so indoctrinated during the period of their captivity that in order to resolve cognitive dissonance, they needed to join with the agenda of their captors in order to survive psychologically. That's one explanation. But there's a second part to it, that when the police finally broke in, they ignored the captors completely, they had no interest in them, they treated them shamefully, and then their main focus was on capturing the quote-unquote bad guys. And so the, the captors felt that they had been as badly done by, by the police, their alleged liberators, as they were by the captors. Now, I see the same thing happening in our world today. We'd be presented with a God who likes, like, looks like these, the captors who've held us hostage and frightened us to, uh, to death. And the only way we've survived is to manage some kind of cognitive dissonance, where we somehow align with this genocidal maniac we call God, in order to be able to survive psychologically and hopefully get to heaven if we're good guys. And then along comes materialistic scientism and atheism telling us there is no God whatsoever. There is no transcendence. When you die, you croak, that it lights out. Now the people who are allegedly going to free us from this maniacal God are worse. They're giving us meaningless world. You know, uh, there, there is no such thing as consciousness or the soul or an afterlife. And now we're caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. So what in God's name are we going to do at that stage? And that's where I think our world is caught right now. We're caught between those who are advocating radical atheism and materialistic science on one hand, and those who are trying to cling, cling to a kind of fundamentalist, fear-based religion, dogma on the other, and we're somewhere in the middle. And what I'm trying to do particularly is saying there is a third way. It's not just these two options. We can kind of understand who the God is in whose image and likeness we were created and take back the kind of the uh, projection, the God whom we have created in our image and likeness and find where the real truth lies in between. Yes, it's, it's very important. You bring up an important point that, that I'm going to pose as a question because you've, you, you know, you know, Parents that have been hurt, hurt their children. They recapitulate their trauma. 
And what you've just described as the situation in religion is now repeating itself in our social environment with government and with the Great Reset, Klaus Schwab, Nobel Harari, uh, uh, George Soros. I mean, you know, we've got we've got a lot of like dark shit going down right now. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, it, to me, it looks like we're just reliving a, a modern version of this biblical traumatic situation. And I'm curious as to your thoughts on that. I'm 100% behind you on that part. And not only are we looking at a repeat version of it, we're looking at a kind of the older version with large. Because in past times, there were kind of regional areas which were dominated by particular tyrants or particular dogmatic religious belief systems. Now we got a global scenario with this reset and the Klaus Schwabs of the world and the kind of the, uh, the uh, um, world economic forums and the WHO and the UN, you know, yeah. shoving so we got a global version at this stage of um, a dogmatic religious belief, you know, that you're not allowed to kind of question or contradict. So they're in charge now. The censorship means that there's only one single perspective. And propaganda means this is in our face uh, night, noon, and morning. But I've never owned a TV set in my, li in my life by, by choice. And I keep advocating to people for the last 30, 40 years, don't you know, burn your newspapers. Don't check in. You're not going to get news from the media. You're going to get propaganda from the media. And it becomes really, really important that the meme makers or the storytellers are the people who fashion our societies. You know, the, the meme is to the culture what the archetype is to the complex or what the blueprint is to the building. And so if there's only one person in charge of the meme making, then you're only going to get one culture emerging from that. So it becomes really, really important for us to wake up. I had a really powerful vision many, many years ago down at a river that flows through my property. And uh, I had an encounter with an extra, an extra dimensional being who told me that, you know, that Homo sapiens sapiens is trifurcating into what he described as Homo sociopathicus, who are the kind of the Klaus Schwab's of the world and the, uh, the Harari's of the world, you know, who are uh, interested in greed and violence and world uh, reduction of world population. That's the first group. The second group is we call it Homo artificialis, which is human beings who are programmable and hackable uh, through a technology. Yeah. yeah. And so they have no control over what they're thinking or what they're doing. The kind of the, the green car before you can go, you know, uh, you're shopping. And the third zombies. Group, yeah, zombies. And the third group we call Homo spiritualis. And that's been my kind of mantra for the last 10 years to, to challenge Homo sociopathicus. Uh, to refuse to become homo artificialis and to try my damnedest to become homo spiritualis and to join other awake individuals, you know, to create a counter movement to this dogmatic censorship and propaganda. Because it literally, we're in a battle for the soul of the planet at this stage. We are. And next time you meet that being, please give him a hug for me and tell him I totally agree with his, uh, Analysis. Yeah. Uh, his analysis, because uh, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, and it is it is a very important time The see the differences, Sean. And, and, you know, back in the days of the Bible, you know, they were throwing spears and yes. using uh, giant catapults. But the worst thing you do is destroy a building and kill a couple people. But today 
you know, we've got enough nuclear weapons to completely evaporate the planet 179 times over. And we got a lot of strange, crazy son of a bitches with access to those buttons. And thank the Lord, there's documented cases of extraterrestrial beings disarming our missiles. Um, you know, most people are too shallow to understand that. But I mean, that gives me great hope and hearing, um, uh, Stephen Greer, Dr. Stephen Greer, yeah. who I really, I really feel he's very authentic. He's said many, many times, he said, look, I've interacted with these beings probably more than most people. And th there is no question that they are far, far, far billions of years more evolved than us. And they know exactly the growing pains we're going through. And they know how dangerous we are to ourselves and the planet. And he, he describes how when we started testing nuclear bombs, they got very concerned because we now had enough power to create shockwaves affecting other dimensions, other planets, and even other star systems. And that's why they begin coming around and keeping a close eye on us because they're like, you know, we're, we're kind of like rebellious little teenagers that have stolen mother's car and are out burning rubber and crashing it into things and think we're smart. Yeah. But, uh, so to build on to build on that little poll, um, you're you're all fair with the work of um, <clears throat> Nikolai Kardashev, who's a brilliant Russian astrophysicist who talked about typologies of civilizations in the cosmos. Uh huh. Yes, I know of his. I've got it in my book. <laughs> okay, so you know this. He he claimed that a type one civilization was a civilization that could harness all of the energies of their home planet. You know, we're uh, a type zero. <laughs> And he said, you know, the the, uh, the jump from type zero to type one is the most difficult because at that point you're developing technology that could literally destroy the planet itself. And we're in the end of that process. And this encounter I had 10 years ago with this extra dimensional, what he said to me is, you know, he said, I've spent eons and eons and eons of your earth time uh, uh, planting life, seeding life, genetically or moderating life, uh, fertilizing life pruning life in many, many different systems. And uh, at every, I can always predict how it's going to develop up to the stage where you, you where creatures evolve from a developed technology. And at that stage, you said, all bets are off. I, after that, I can never predict. Up to then, I can know exactly what the trajectory is going to look like. You know, it talked about this notion of convergent evolution. So convergent evolution is the notion that the same genetic code if it lands in a similar environment, will produce similar kinds of creatures. But if a genetic code lands in a radically different environment, it'll produce totally different kinds of creatures. And so, yeah, what he told me was then, you know, uh, you get to a place where beings evolve who are self-aware, who develop technology, and up to then, I can predict exactly how the trajectory is going to look. When it gets to that stage, and free will is part of the uh, the setup. I can't predict where it's going to go. And I can't tell you what that your, your civilization on planet Earth will survive or not. You know, it's up to you guys what, what kinds of choices you make. But again, exactly as you said, as Stephen Greer says, the, uh, the first nuclear explosion, and it wasn't on August 6th in Hiroshima. It was in uh, the, the Trinity test site in New Mexico on July 8th, 1945, which was an, a, an atomic bomb. It wasn't a test. It was an atomic bomb. That devastated the area. And of course it set shockwaves off in the time, in the space time continuum that's affecting beings in other dimensions. So of course they're going to 
And exactly as you said, you know, the kids who've gotten the box of matches are some teenager who got his mother's car and is out, you know, with wheelies on the freeway. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's, we're in a very dangerous time. Part of the problem too, and I'd love to hear your comments on this is, and you know, I've, I've actually, I've studied Ken Wilber for many, many years. I have his collected works as well as Jung's collected works and Ruby's collected actually, works. actually look like him, Paul. <laughs> Some people tell me that. Yeah. 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 It's kind of funny. Um, the, the, um, the thing that Ken Wilber brings up in his studies of the structure stages of consciousness, he says, you can show people at the fundamentalist level of religion hard science showing that their views of the world or creation are wrong, but they absolutely refuse to look at it because they're indoctrinated. This is the problem with a belief system. A belief system is by definition closed. So the the, the benefit of a belief system is they, they can make things more efficient. But the problem is, is if you believe it, you stop questioning your own beliefs and you become trapped in your unconscious, which as you know, Jung wrote at length about the dangers of. So on one hand, we've got religious people that won't look at science or other religions or philosophies that would open them up to the next level of their own spiritual and conscious growth. But then we have the scientific, materialistic, atheistic people who are only looking at their science and only see the world as materialistic and what's weighed and measured and think anything to do with the soul or spirituality is just a bunch of bullshit and think then you have like a Richard Dawkins who just, you know, traumatizes everybody else as bad as Yahweh does and thinks he's, thinks he's a smart guy. So the question is, you know, with your background and your training, and, and this is a question that's not easy to answer. I've asked it to many genius minds, including people like Urban Laszlo. How do we bridge the gap so that people like you that are legitimate wise elders and even people like myself and Regina Meredith and, and Greg Braden and Bruce Lipton and, and, and Paul Levy and, and the many people that have real wisdom and have really worked hard, honestly, to grow themselves can get the message out and help bring people into an awareness that there's more to what's going on than they've been led to believe or they've convinced themselves of. I mean, that's to me without that, I don't think, I don't think we, you know, we're kind of like a snowball heading for hell. Right. That's a great, great, great question. So what it brings up for me is this, uh, a statement of Jesus one time by their fruit, you shall know them. That ultimately, even the dumbest of people who are stuck in their religious dogma or their scientific dogma, eventually there are so many data points, there's so much evidence that the systems they're propagating aren't working. They're leading to all vicissitude. So ultimately, even the dumbest people are going to realize that the, the results don't match the kind of the promises and will begin to wake up. I've been saying for years and years and years to my own people that until the world reaches a crisis of such magnitude that we're going to wake up enough to realize you can't just keep putting bandage on stuff and hope it's going to go better and then go back to sleep. It has to be so bad that enough people are going to wake up fully and stay awake so that we can do the kind of major spiritual surgery which is necessary to reawaken us. 
And I think it's happening in our times. People like, I don't know if you've come across the work of um, Matthias Desmet, the uh, formation, you know, mass formation psychosis. Uh, I've I've read some books and things on mass mo- more for, uh, psychosis, mass formation psychosis. I don't know if it was him or who, because I've been right. moving very quickly. But it, I understand. It, yeah, he's the originator of it, and he's written just in the last two or three book years this extraordinary book. If you get a chance to to read it, um, pointing out the the tyranny of our times is different from the tyranny of past times. In the past, you had individual tyrants like a Stalin or a, a Hitler or Mussolini. Yeah, taking control of a group, you know, and people operating out of fear. Modern times, we have so indoctrinated the populace that there are people getting on board, yeah, and they're willing participants of their own destruction. It reminds me, like, I was a, the Aztec civilization that on a regular basis, you know, mass murdered sacrificial victims to offer the, they'd cut open the chest of a living victim, take out the beating heart, and throw it down the steps. You know, for the sun god, because the belief system was that the sun god is fighting the, the dark god, and he needs human blood in order to be able to make the sun rise every day. And so he needs to be fed constantly, and people would willingly sacrifice. It was an honor to give your heart, literally, so that you become part of the army in the afterlife of the sun god. And there are people now, and I'm seeing this in our own country, who are willing participants in the lockdowns and the mass mandates and the vilification of the unvaxxed, and the kind of the snitching on them, they're becoming willing collaborators because some of them feel they're part of a movement. You know, those who are isolated formerly are now part, part of a movement and that are going to kind of make a huge difference and relieve the pressure of the anxiety of being individuals because they can join a group, you know, led by the WEF or, or Tony Fauci or Bill Gates or whatever and feel like they're doing something of value for themselves. So he's written a whole book on the difference between this modern mass formation, and the previous versions of, of tyrants, individual tyrants. Hi, everybody. I hope you're enjoying the show. I imagine you know that magnesium is one of the minerals that people in North America are the most efficient in, but it's an extremely important mineral to have in your diet regularly. And believe it or not, Bioptimizers has improved what was already well known to be the best magnesium formula out there called Magnesium Breakthrough. So I've got Wade Lightheart with me to explain what it is they've done to improve this already excellent formula. Wade, what is new about your new Mag Breakthrough formula? Well, it's called Sucrosomial Magnesium. So we have seven different types of magnesium in Magnesium Breakthrough because they're uptaken by different parts of the body. But a new type of magnesium has been created called sucrosomial. And what it shows in the research in science is that it's actually even more absorbable by the body, particularly inside of the brain, which is a big aspect uh, to enhance neurotransmitter formation, as well as ensuring the rest and relax response in the nervous system that a lot of people will take magnesium for. They find it, you know, clocks them down, helps them sleep better, allows for the relaxation of striated and smooth muscle tissue in the body, which creates an energetic relief. And so when we added sucrosomial, we were able to demonstrate inside our lab facility that we were able to get better improvements. Of course, we have a partnership with the Birch International University. We have some patents we're working on, uh, which will kind of relay some of these things. But sucrosomial was a no-brainer when we added to the formula, improved the results or improved the uptake. And the reports back from our testing team were like, wow, this we get more results with less caps. And 
that's always the goal for our company. That's excellent. I love it. I, I always say, and people have probably heard me say it before, I just am so amazed how you guys are constantly and always improving and working your best to not only make better products for us, but it doesn't seem to me that it gets more expensive as you make them better. So that's a real gift to the world. Thank you. Where can people get their new magnesium breakthrough formula? All they need to do is go to www.magbreakthrough.com slash living4d. Put in Paul 10, get 10% discount on your first bottle. And of course, if you order multiple bottles, you can get an extensive discount on that as well. And like everything else we sell, 365-day money-back guarantee. If this isn't the best magnesium you've ever taken in your life, we demand that you tell us and we can give you your money back. But I think you're probably going to demand, hey, can I get more of this? <laughs> that, that's probably more the truth. So that's mag, M-A-G, breakthrough.com forward slash living number four. And then the letter D, code Paul 10. Enjoy deeper relaxation and better nutrition with Mag Breakthrough. One of the things that concerns me and I've had this same perception that you just described that we have to reach a crisis point that's so deep and profound that it wakes the sleeping people up. The, the, though I do believe that it comes with a real challenge and the real challenge is the amount of a, the magnitude of the crisis that's going to wake that many people up is also at risk of traumatizing them so badly that we just recapitulate more of it and that mm -hmm. we end up having a few people walking around awoke and then a, the rest of them that are just shell-shocked and spend many generations or reincarnations suffering from PTSD, which many believe we're still going through. You know, it's so it's a real risky thing it's i agree fully with you paul and that's where when i said we need to go uh, transpersonal transpatient tra transrational you know um we have to realize as well that this evolutionary process of planet earth uh, is um it's going to take maybe many 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 lifetimes for the avatars even among us you know to wake the rest of us up and so we have to realize that we have to put our shoulders to the wheel of human evolution but not expect it. it has to happen in my way and in my lifetime even. But that, you know, as a soul on safari, we have to realize, okay, I'm signing up for an incarnation and I'm going to move this system along a little bit and I'll come back again and I'll move it along another little bit and eventually we'll create a critical mass of people who will change the entire uh, culture, this global culture. But in the meantime, we have to try to radiate the people who are asleep you know, and recalcitrant with the energy of forgiveness and of love. And so that passion that we, with which we articulate our positions, it can't be a passion driven by anger or revenge or even kind of impatience. It's, it has been the passion of a commitment to the truth and a commitment to God's timeline and God's methodology. And so do what I can do. And then yeah, this is basically like this is God's game. You know, what you just described as the way to handle it is very much like the Cathars handled their persecution by the Christians. You know, they, they're, they're, the Cathars approach is very, very, you know, 
people often accuse me of being anti-Christianity. And I say, look, I'm not anti-Christianity. I'm just anti-corporate Christianity. I said, I would love to see people practicing the teachings of Jesus. But having studied the Cathars, I don't agree with everything. And there's some of the things that I don't agree with that I'll talk to you about along the way here. But the one thing I do agree with is they really did exemplify the core teachings of Jesus regardless of whether Jesus was here or not, or Lao Tzu was here or any of them were here, the teachings are the teachings. And they exemplified the teachings and basically acted out of love, even for those that hurt them the most or killed them and stuck to their beliefs and, and, and were very conscious not to be attached to power, wealth, love for the wrong reasons and fame and they really felt power wealth love and fame were were you know the work of the magician the christians call the devil and and i think those are phenomenally good teachings um one of the areas that's common in in other religions um that they sort of set themselves up with I'll, I'll get into with you a little later because I want to save that part for another discussion but I, I think anybody that really wants to practice real Christianity just needs to study the Cathars yes, yes. because they really laid out the teachings of Jesus beautifully and also the thing I loved about the Cathars is they did not worship Jesus as a god they worshipped him as a human being that demonstrated we were capable of achieving Christ consciousness and many people, Christians that have been Christians all their lives, don't realize Christ is not Jesus's last name. It's a title that means one who is united with the all. I tell people, look, having calling yourself Jesus Christ would be like saying, my name is Paul CEO. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's he is one of many that achieved Christ consciousness. So the Cathars didn't deify Jesus as this God figure. They, they worshiped him because of his accomplishments and showed the rest of us what was possible. To me, that's a healthy relationship with Jesus. Absolutely. So I keep telling people, there's this great phrase at the beginning of John's gospel called the prologue, which is really, it's mystical and constantly misunderstood, where it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And people think, oh yeah, that means Jesus. Jesus was God, yeah, he was a divine being, he took an incarnated form, and he dwelt among us. And I keep saying to people, everything that exists is a word of God made flesh. Yeah. Every, the oak trees, the kitty cats, you know, human beings, avatars, they're all words of God made flesh. So I keep saying that, you know, life as we experience it is a dream that the ego is having. And the is a dream that the soul is having, and the soul is a dream that spirit is having, and spirit is a dream that God is having. So we're, we're, we're nested dreams. That everything that exists is both uh, the word of God made flesh, and everything that exists is simply God in drag. There is nothing yeah. to explain. It's only a question of the self-awareness of the articulation, whether it's a rock, an oak tree, a kitty cat, or a human being. The level of self-awareness is different. But the vast bulk of people, their self-awareness is that they're skin-encapsulated egos and that if they 
Jelani came not to religion or to Jesus, yeah, he was he was God become flesh. The rest of us are just the the, the dreams, you know, kind of struggling through. We're not. And so again, it's like I was invited to give um, a series of lectures about 15 years ago in the Presbyterian Church in Palo Alto, and I chose as my topic the, the title: "Will the real Jesus please stand up?" And I gave seven different lectures over the period over Lent that that year. And I meditated one day, you know, a preparation for this, and I have a vision of Jesus standing with me. And I was just reading this passage, which said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. So I said to him, you know, did you say that? He said, yes. I said, are you the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through you? He said, yes, because the way is love, and the truth is love, and then life is love, and the only way you can get to the Father is through love. And then spontaneously he said, and the Buddha is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody can get to the Father except through the Buddha, because the way is compassion, you know, and the life is compassion, you know, and it's all about compassion. And so he's articulating, of course, I am the Word of God made flesh, and so are you. Wake up, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Wake up. <laughs> oh my God, too good. Um, could you give us? an encapsulation or an overview of what you would say your spiritual philosophy is. If, if you had to say, you know, if you were having friends and one guy said, well, I'm a Taoist and I believe this. And the other one said, well, I'm an Orthodox Christian and I think you're crazy. And I believe this. And an atheist said, it's all bullshit. You guys look, this is what science says. And then Sean steps in and says, well, this is what life has taught me. So, how would you give us an overview of, of what your spiritual philosophy has become after, you know, 70 plus years of honest work, research, spiritual development, growth and commitment? That's a brilliant question. Brilliant question. So here's some of the elements of it for me. The first one, I believe literally that, you know, when God is both a transcendent and an imminent reality, imminent in the sense that, she reveals herself through nature, through her manifestation. So whether I'm looking at a sky or a cloud or an oak tree, you know, I'm looking at the manifestation. But there's a transcendence of God which is indescribable, inarticulatable. It can be experienced, but it cannot be articulated. And so we're dancing between this transcendence and this imminence of God. And the only way we can speak about an experience of the divine is some kind of parabolic or, you know, story form. So... The mystics tell us that, you know, you can't have a mystical experience. You can be had by a mystical experience, but it's not you having an experience. It's the experience having you. So it's God having experience through you. So yes. have this mystical experience. Then sometime later, you're left with a kind of a residual symbol of what that experience was like. And then the third stage is you try to conceptualize that symbol to make sense of it. And the fourth stage is you put a bunch of symbols together or concepts together and you try to create a thesis or a theology on it. And at that stage, you're three stages removed from the actual experience. So that's the first realization. So that anything we say about God has to be parabolic or story, uh, story form. So when I personally, I trace the evolution uh, of uh, our thinking about God. I, I, it reminds me of, you know, the transcendence of God is to the imminence of God as Shakespeare is to Hamlet. So Shakespeare is this genius that created Hamlet and Macbeth and the Thomas Night Dream and all of the sonnets. So 
reading the literature, even his collective works, is not Shakespeare. You know, it's a manifestation of some of his genius. Other stuff he wrote that never got published, other stuff he thought about that, that never made it into print. And so the transcendence of God is to the imminence like, like Shakespeare is to, to Hamlet. So to make that distinction. Now we start talking about Hamlet. What is my belief system about Hamlet, the imminence? And what I see is this, that I believe that the only way that God can experience is through a, a kind of a, a self-fracturing, what uh, Judaism would call netzotzim. But if you think about it, there's a, a triune formulation we call the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, or we call it Sat, Chit, Ananda, or we call it Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. And so we try to articulate it in three aspects, because there are three ways in which we experience God. There are not three ways in which God ontologically exists, but three ways in which we can experience it. Now, for me, the Father represents the isness of source. The Son represents God's total self-knowledge. And the Spirit represents the love that God has for whom she knows herself to be. But that's a closed system. It can't develop. And so God has to self-fracture and create the illusion of that which is not herself. And so she self-fractures into these souls. And they go off into incarnations of various kinds. And they gather experiences of separateness. And then they bring them back to the high light bees coming back with the nectar and the stories. So that in some senses, the imminence of God can evolve. You know, there's a name even for us called process theology, that God is well as God is also evolving. The imminence yeah, of God. I believe that. Yeah, the God that's articulating. So now let me deal with that piece of it, that aspect of God that's evolving. What, what, how do I see that? So I see then that these souls, who are the bees sent out from the hive to bring back stories and nectar, that we make these what I call preconception contracts. Groups of souls who migrate from incarnation to incarnation. They change roles, genders, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, IQ level, religious affiliation. All of those are just kind of roles they play in a particular incarnation. But that's not who they really are. They're roles they agree, and they set up a drama in each lifetime which affords each one of the souls the opportunity of growing, of developing one or two particular virtues. But there's no script, and there's no plot. There's only an initial circumstance. It's like psychodrama or like um, improvisation, improv theater, where you get actors on stage, you throw them a word, oranges. I know they're on stage, and all they know oranges, make a play about oranges. I know they're going to have to draw on their previous experiences of life to create a dialogue, which creates a plot, which creates responses. So we come into an initial circumstance. You know, we parachute into a period of human history, into a kind of a, a location, a geographical location, with a group of players, some of whom have preceded us, and we can become part of the, the drama that they've begun to create. And we take part in it, and we change it by the words we speak and the acts we believe in. So I call that a preconception contract. You know, and um, at the end of that period, you know, we go back to source, we go back to our mentors, and we say, okay, you know, how did I do? And there's a life review. It's not a judgment of any kind. It's, you know, do you think that you kind of fulfilled what you went on to do? And of course, all of us say, yeah, well, I did some of it, you know, uh, or other parts that I didn't do. And there'd be a lot of people say, you know, mea culpa, you know, I was asleep at the wheel. You know, I thought it was about you know, becoming famous, you know, making lots of money. You know, are, uh, you know, becoming uh, a, a politician or whatever. And there may be ways in which I kind of um, act out my mission, but they are never my mission. My mission is not to be a priest or a psychologist. My mission 
is to develop, you know, to become awake and to be a teacher. Yeah. And a teacher in a classroom, you know, or by giving public lectures or writing books. Now, that's only kind of, that's the only outlet. But my mission is to be some kind of a teacher, some kind of an awakener. You know, and I'm going to be, I'm going to judge myself on that. How awake was I? And how much did I commit to being an agent of awakening others? Or how much did I just drop the ball? So in brief, I think that that's where, you know, that's my particular mindset. And that doesn't have to be allied to any kind of a culture. It doesn't have to be allied to any kind of religious belief system. It doesn't have to be allied to any kind of a profession. I can use all of these as kind of outlets for the basic mission itself. So I'm not going to call myself a Catholic or a priest or a psychologist or Irish. But these are all kind of artifacts in the space suit. I call this a space suit. And the space suit has physicality, emotionality, intellectuality, and personality. But they're just artifacts in the space suit. When Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, he needed a spacesuit that could allow him to survive there and to do whatever work he needed to do. I needed this particular spacesuit to operate on a place called planet Earth. I need physicality, emotionality, intellectuality, and personality. And now I'm going to see how well am I using these gifts? Because there are artifacts in the spacesuit. I'll discard those when I shuffle off this mortal coin. And then I'm going to have to face my soul and say, okay, was I awake or was I asleep? On a scale of one to ten. You know, how well did I remember what I came down to do? So that would be my religion. I, I love it. And, and, it, and, and I would describe it as a meta philosophy because, you know, you've described something that makes room for everything. Yes. Yes. And, and uh, I, I love your description of the spacesuit. So just for fun, tell people what your web, web address is. Well, uh, my web address is spirits in spacesuits. Dot com. One word, spiritsinspacers.com. And the first, the first book I wrote in, it, in English had that title as well, Spirits and Spacers. That's fantastic. You know, Sean, we both agree and we've talked about it. There are many deep problems with the church and with what I call corporate religion. But I'd love to hear if you could share what lit religion can offer us, particularly during stressful times like now. And how do we sift the wheat from the chaff of religion so that, because there's a lot of people that are afraid to leave their religion. They, they haven't um, individuated to you, use a union term, right? They're still dependent upon the church as a surrogate father, mother figure. They're still um, identified by the people, the family that they grew up with and to, to, you know, maybe leave and join a Buddhist temple would get them excommunicated from the people who they love and who they need to to feel safe and connected and and to to have a sense of belonging. So it it takes somebody who's ready to go on the hero's journey to go off and build their own religion because if you build your own religion, then you're kind of like a kid that's not black or not white. Now everybody beats on you, right? You, the, the white people think you're black and the black people think you're white and you're stuck in the middle. Right. Um, so, you know, knowing, you know, 85% of the world's population claims religious affiliation. It's a lot of people. And I would say, you know, Osho said it takes 6 billion people to produce one truly enlightened person. So we know there's not a lot of truly enlightened people floating around. So, I would love to hear your wisdom for the listeners that that do love their religion 
And those that, you know, when people get scared, it's normal to revert back in consciousness. You drop down structure stages. So a lot of people, for example, that I know who were beyond religion prior to COVID are now all of a sudden becoming Orthodox Christians again and all sorts of stuff. But I would love it if you could share for all of us who need something to support us through these challenging times, we could call it some aspects of religion. How do we go into this? You know, someone's saying, you know, I'm, I've, I've got to go back to church. I need, to, I need the help of Jesus. I've just lost my job. They want to vaccinate me or I've been vaccinated. Now I feel like shit. I wish I hadn't have done that. I need God's help. How do, what advice do you have for people that want religion, but don't want to get the dark side of it? How do we, what are the pieces we need to collect and, and take home with us? That's a hugely important question, Paul. So the first thing I would say is that I believe that religion is the training wheels for spirituality. And so I do too. Yeah. And so every everybody needs to be inducted as a little child into some kind of a wisdom tradition. And that happens naturally through our culture, through our family. And so we're all being inducted into some form of you know, a philosophy or cosmology. Now, I think that religion needs, needs to morph into spirituality, which doesn't mean that it's the end of religion. It means religion has to change completely. There was, I think it was Nisar Gadatta who said famously one time, if you're walking in the desert and you come across the tracks of religion, follow them. But don't follow, <laughs> them. don't follow where they're leaving. Follow where they came back from. Go back to the source. Yeah. Religion started off with a mystical impulse. Some extraordinary, some extraordinary charismatic avatar had a mystical experience. Now, what happens, unfortunately, there's a cycle that happens almost inevitably, which is you get this great, Avatar, you know, a Buddha figure, a Jesus figure, perhaps a Muhammad figure, Muhammad figure. But their their message is so upsetting to the current regime, whether it's a theocracy of which they're a part, or it's a political system of which they're a part, or in our case, whether it's a technocracy of which they're a part. It's really, really upsetting. And so, almost inevitably, the prophet is killed. And now the people who had found him really charismatic, they create some kind of a community, stage three. So stage one is the charismatic prophet. Stage two is he's going to get killed. Stage three is there's a kind of a community that forms around him. Stage four is inevitably the community is going to harden into an organization or an institution. Stage five is some self-appointed oligarchy is going to take charge of it. And then they're going to insist on dogmatic uh, uh, belief systems. If they have the ability, they're going to create inquisitions against, you know, the, um, the heterodox among them. And if they have the ability, they're going to lead crusades against the people who don't believe in their system. And then some new prophet arrives to kind of call us back to where we started, like Francis of Assisi in the 1200s, who's calling Christianity back into the insights of Jesus. And within 300 years, the organization that built up around Francis, we call them the Franciscan Friars, were leading the in Europe. They I know, the, I just, I was just studying that. Yeah, they were destroying the Qatars. The people who started with this great insight of France, and we need to go back to our roots. So what slowly, slowly, the second person to take over says, you know, the prophet said we should be going towards the east, but he didn't actually mean the east, he meant the northeast. So we needed to just yeah. shift. <laughs> no, it wasn't, he didn't actually mean the northeast, he meant the north. So we need to pivot some more. The next guy says, you know, he actually meant northwest. So we need to pivot again. And the final guy says, he actually meant west. 
So there were 180 degrees out from what the, the, the founder said. So that's the problem with is We constantly need profits. So what is the, the function of religion then? It is to create the kind of communities that do two things. A community should be able to um, um, support the individual members in their search for truth and at the same time question their belief systems. And the individual community member must be doing the same thing for the community, must be supporting the community in its search for truth and challenging its belief systems. So it must be a two-way street, prophecy going in both directions. And prophecy does not mean to foretell the future. It means to forestall the future. The prophet is not the guy who can predict the future. It's the guy who can prevent the future because he knows where the <laughs> Totally. That's that. That's the first time I've ever heard anyone say that. That's a very interesting view of a yeah. prophet. The prophet is the guy who's calling us back into alignment with source. So he can see us. Yes. So he's not predicting the future. He's saying, guys, I want you to come back to the original covenant we made with source when we incarnated. So he's clearly what's happening and he's calling us back. So, you know, each member of the community should be a prophet for the community and the prophet should be the community should be a profit for each member. So there's a mutual calling back to source going on that we're constantly open. And the only group I that got, the only group that got it right in my opinion were the Quakers. Were the every, Quakers, yeah, there. Yeah. Every member of the community felt that they were a conduit for the source to speak to the group. You know, but there was a hierarchy that determined we're gonna tell you, we're gonna speak on behalf of God. So a really good community that and we need it. Because we need togetherness. You know, whether it's a physical community where we're interacting with each other and hugging each other, or whether it's an online community, we need support from each other at this stage, desperately need. And I see the future of religion as kind of a networking, like a global brain. We're moving from what um, um, Tyler de Sharda called the noosphere, the sheet of consciousness that surrounds the biosphere. And I think there are three more spheres. I think planet Earth is going through seven iterations. The same way Hinduism talks about seven levels of body. There's the physical body. There's the etheric body. There's the astral body. There's the mental body. There's the psychic body. There's the soul body. And there's the cosmic body or Brahma consciousness. I think the planet itself has the same seven levels. There is this physiosphere, which is a rock, the first level of body. Then it created a womb that I call the atmosphere, which could bring life. So it created an atmosphere. The third one was a biosphere. It started creating singular cell organisms and then marine life and then um, uh, land life. But now we're at the fourth stage and Tyler Mishadat talked about this, a movement into a fourth sheet surrounding the biosphere, which is a group mind. And the internet was the beginning of that. Now we're moving between biosphere and noosphere at this stage. But is it going to be a noosphere of pre-planned programming on behalf of the oligarchy? Or is it where there's um, the openness of everybody within the system uh, to hear what everybody else within the system has to say? That's the job, the job to get to the noosphere. But there are three more levels beyond that. Level five I call the anima sphere. It is the, the anima as in soul, the Latin for soul. It's the soul sphere that surrounds even the noosphere. And then the sixth one is, I call it the pneuma sphere, pneuma as in spirit. And the one is the Brahma sphere. So we are halfway there as a planetary system. We're halfway between biosphere and noosphere. And we're in deep, deep, deep doo-doo because that's been hiding 
by the WEFs of the world and the WHOs and the UNs of the world and the Klaus Schwab's of the world. It's been hijacked. And our job is to make that transition seamlessly into an anima sphere. Now, the communities of the future, I believe then, we're going to start with small groups of people. And some, some small groups are going to learn how to do a totally different uh, economic model. It's not going to be the World Bank or the Bank of International Settlements uh, dictating. Another group will focus perhaps on uh, food production, horticulture at a local level. Others will focus on education of our children, that they're not going to be indoctrinated into kind of uh, transgenderism. Another group will, will, will focus on, on medicine, you know, uh, home cures, medic medicinal plants. Another group will focus on, there'll be people who focus on mystical thinking. And all these are interacting with each other and cross-fertilizing with each other like the Gnostic intermediary. So that's how I foresee it. And those people who are awake at this stage, you know, are lighting the lamp. We had a tradition in Ireland, but even when I was a kid, there were fires in Ireland, you know, homes in Ireland that had not gone out for 300 years. Our, our, our source was turf, or what you call here, peat, that we have. So the mother is tending the fire all day long. It's warming the house, and she's cooking on it. At night, when every child goes to bed and the husband goes to bed, she covers it over with ashes, and there's just the glowing embers. And in the morning she gets up, she's the first one awake, and she wakes back, and there are the glowing embers, and she puts fresh turf in it, and it bursts into flame again. And there were houses in which the fire hadn't gone out for 300 years. Now, by analogy, they are the mystics throughout the ages. They are the glowing embers who have been covered over either intentionally or unintentionally by, by, by tragedy or by control of others. But they're burning there. They're holding that mystical tradition alive. And our job in our times is to rake back the ashes and to add some more fuel so that it can burst into that religion can burst into the flames of, of mystical spirituality. That's our job right now. I think it's absolutely bang on. Hi, guys. I hope you're enjoying the show. I had to take a little break to tell you that Symbiotic has just come out with an amazing new vitamin D product that will be ready for you by the time you get this little infomercial on it. So I've got Sherveen here with me, and he's going to tell us what is in his new product that's an upgrade from the previous product. So Sherveen, everybody's talking about vitamin D, obviously, with COVID. So what should we know about this product and why should we use it? Well, we're supposed to be getting our vitamin D from the sun. Yes. That's our ultimate source, right? Yeah. UVA, UVB rays, rays hit, our, hit the cholesterol in our skin, converts to vitamin D in the body, fat-soluble vitamin, and boom, which is great, which is why we go out in the sun every single day. But if you're looking for something a little bit extra, or perhaps you're somewhere that you're not getting enough sun. Which or is a lot of places. 80% of the world. Yeah. And depending on your genetics and a lot of things. We got to make the best formula ever, typical Symbiotica style. So we use D3 coming from lichen, which is a mm -hmm. cross between fungi and algae. Mm -hmm. And we have 5,000 IUs in this formula, which is up from 3,000. Mm. We also have both forms of vitamin K2, which works synergistically with vitamin D3. Vitamin K2 is responsible for removing free-floating calcium out of your blood and arteries and your heart and brain tissue mm -hmm. and actually where they belong into your bones. Super critical today. We need to get the, the right forms of calcium into our bones. Vitamin K2 does that. And we have the MK4 and MK7 versions in there. We also have CoQ10 in there, mm. which is a strong heart antioxidant. Yeah. You throw that in there in liposomal form and all organic materials in there from the 
essential oils. We we actually went with a tangerine flavor on this. Oh, good. We found a really good tangerine oil. It's organic. It's the best ever. It's creamy. It's delicious. It comes to you in a Myron bottle, just like all of our stuff. Mm -hmm. This is really like immunity in a bottle, and it's very, very delicious and versatile. And is it safe for kids? Absolutely. Any age? Any age. Yeah, there's no counterindications with children whatsoever. Excellent. Well, it's a very important product today with all the viral shock going around and whatever else they're giving us. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, obviously a lot of people are getting sick because they're just not eating well and they don't have the right supplements. And so, in the busy world we live in with a lot of people being indoors, I mean, I know people that are vitamin D deficient that live in Florida because they're indoors too much. So absolutely, I'm excited to be able to share this with you guys. Get your top-notch Symbiotica vitamin D at C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com for your Living 4D discount. Use check 15 on checkout and get ready to be absolutely amazed with your vitamin D upgrade. What you shared, just to make sure I understood you correctly and to review for the listeners, what you've said is that right now the way to use religion is to get together, support each other as prophets, meaning that we're not predicting the future, but we're back tracing our steps to our ultimate, deepest, most core, love-centered relationship with source. The source that is not definable, that has no name, but the closest we can get, and these are my own words ad-libbing, is love. Absolutely. That instead of reading books and telling each other about rules, it really should be a sharing and supporting of navigating the times we're in and doing our best to stay heart-centered and asking the question, what would love do now, and supporting each other in doing that. Yeah, yeah. Hang on, Paul. Hang on. And to do that, then I would suggest that we need to radically uh, reassess what we mean by time. So I think that there are seven timelines that we're kind of struggling with. Uh, two uh, timelines in the past, two in the present, and three in the future. And here's what they look like. There are two timelines in the past. One is what actually happened in the past. And we're products of that, whether we're aware of it or not. And then there's the fictitious past that has been recorded by the kind of the court historians that we were told how it went down. And we're affected by that as well. So we're products of both the fictitious past and the actual past. And the same in the present, we're products of the real present and the fictitious present. The real present is what's really happening in our world right now. Whether you're talking about the jab, you know, or the WF or whatever. And then there's the fictitious present, which is the propaganda. What they're telling us is happening right now. So there are the two uh, timelines of the present. And then there are three in the future. There's one people who believe that there's an, an inevitable, you know, uh, uncontrollable, you know, outcome over which we have no uh, power whatsoever. So that's the hidden philosophy. Yes. And I don't believe in that for a moment. But that's one timeline they, they espouse. The other one is the probable future. What's probably going to happen if we don't change what we're doing? And the third Quantum one is physics. Yes, exactly. And the third one is the possible future. What could emerge if we do it correctly? And what the job would love of love do now. Exactly, precisely. And the job of the prophet is to point out and say, here's the probable future. There isn't an inevitable future. I don't believe in that. I'll take that off the table. There's the probable 
if we don't look at what we're doing. So my job as a prophet then, whoever the prophet is, is to prevent that from happening by offering you a possible future. And so a community should be able to look at the two pasts, the two presents, and the three futures and decide, you know, what combination of those, what are they going to glean, how are they going to harvest those seven timelines in order to create, as you put it so beautifully, a love, a source-based love. Yes. Fantastic. Um, two points came up that I want to address before I move to my next little exploration with you. Your discussion of the stages of a belief system or a religion, I think there was six of them. Based on that, scientism, which is now killing the heretics, would be at what? Stage five. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. So that's a... We're we're at a we're in a very very dangerous stage of the development of that belief system. It's an inquisition. Any, yeah. Yes. It's an, and it's a crusade. It's a crusade, you know, against the people who don't believe, and an inquisition of any scientists within the system who are beginning to think outside the box. They're absolutely. Right. Yeah. And it's been going on for a long time. I mean, the I've got a book in my library called "The Politics of Healing" by I believe Dan Haley. And he documents, uh, I don't know how many, a lot of people who came up with cures for cancer and, you know, a variety of excellent ideas that would really help people that all were miraculously found dead with suicide notes. And every one of their families said, this is not possible. This person absolutely loved their work. They were inspired. There's no way they committed suicide. And so... You know, my point is that book was written a long time ago. I've got several books like that. This this has been going on for a very long time. If you look at the book DNA Pirates of the Sacred Spiral by Len Horowitz, he shows that people like Carnegie and Rockefeller, they've been investing in how to control people's DNA for almost a hundred years. They've been researching and working on the mastery. And and it and I, I say right now, you know. If you do a little research, what, what they're calling a vaccination is a tracking and controlling device Absolutely. and a genocide device Absolutely. without going into the whole science behind it. I mean, I, I was trained in advanced electronics. I used to repair weapon systems on Cobra helicopters, and I've studied radionics, and I'm a shaman practitioner of modern shamanism, and I'm a remote viewer, and I'm a dowser. With, uh, wor I worked as a dowser and, and a drilling crew for uh, and doused every single well successfully for a year before I left the company. So I have enough background to put all the pieces together. Yes. And a lot of people, when I tell them, look, this is not that hard to do. For example, they were using radionics to yes. kill insects yes. in yes. the late 30s. And the government confiscated their radionics, which they could take a tiny sample of a, of a pesticide known to kill any given parasite and use a small radio and broadcast it through the fields with a 98% kill rate. But as soon as DuPont Chemical found out all these farmers weren't buying chemicals from them anymore, they started an investigation. The next thing you know, the government showed up and confiscated their equipment. Point being, they've known how to control things with radio waves for a very long time and how to kill with them. Absolutely. But most people are way understudied, so they don't realize that this technology has been around a long time. Now they've just figured out how to 
The wrong people have figured out how to use it, and they're using it for exactly the reasons the government took it away from the farmers, for God's sakes. Typical, typical, yeah, yeah, absolutely, 100% agreement with you. My, my next question is, I'm sure you're familiar with Steiner's concept of Eremon, and Yes. Eremon is very linked to the concept of materialism. I wondered if you could share your thoughts of how the Eremonic concept is playing itself out right now. Because, okay. you know, I try to like I, I study a lot of these different beliefs. I've, I've got the I've got one hundred and seventy five of Steiner's books in my library. I've studied him for 20 years. He's a spirit guide to me. But I try my best to not get indoctrinated. So I, I look at. You know, Eremon's really almost like a play on the Christian devil with a materialistic bent to it. Yes. But I'd love it if you could share your thoughts from the Eremonic perspective and maybe introduce it with what your conception of Eremon is so people know what we're talking about. Okay, so um, I'm fascinated at the movement from, um, uh, uh, what do I call it, polytheism to monotheism by a... You know, Zoroastrianism, as you mentioned in your letter, actually. So I believe that one of the first things human beings did when they became self-aware and conscious was to wrestle with their notion of who the gods were, how do we come here, you know, uh, who's responsible for us, uh, where do we go when we die. And I think they initially they came up with three different kinds of gods, what I would call uh, tribal divinities who followed particular peoples around. You know, like Yahweh following the Israelites. And then you had regional divinities who were located in particular part, kinds of real estate. And if you moved into that territory, you had to pay, give obedience to that particular God. And then the third group, would call, I would call them portfolio divinities. So if you're interested in art, here's the guy you need to follow. You're interested in agriculture, here's the guy you need to follow. Interested in warfare, here's the guy you need to follow. So there's all this uniformity of divinities. And people are casting about what's the best fit for, for our group and, and for this time. Now, at, at some stage, um, different groups then will espouse a kind of, uh, not monotheism per se, but a, a, a kind of making a covenant with a particular God, even if they believe there are many gods. So, for instance, even though they could, the very first commandment is, first, I am the Lord your God. You're not allowed to have a covenant to me. In fact, the Bible says there's a great phrase uh, in the Hebrew, Michamocha ba'ali madonoi which means, who is like you among the gods, O Lord? There's lots of gods out there, but you're our guy, and we think you're the greatest. And so the second stage then is they're going to focus on one particular god, but they're going to believe in a whole bunch of other gods. Um, between the year 589 BCE and 539 BCE, the last two tribes of Israel are taken into exile uh, by the Babylonian Empire. Uh, and at this stage, they're afraid that they're going to be destroyed like they've the other 10 tribes in the north have been destroyed 130 years before by the Assyrian Empire. So now they're kind of desperately trying to hold their identity together. And at this stage, Zoroastrianism is the big religion in Babylon and in um, Persia. So the, the great emperor, you know, Cyrus, the, the, the great, the Israelites back the land of Israel. And he introduced Zoroastrianism, as you mentioned. And Zoroastrianism was the first attempt to reduce the pantheon of divinities down to two gods, Ahriman and Uhuru Mazda, and Uhuru being the god of light, Nariman being the god of darkness. So there's then of a titanic struggle going on between, in some senses, these two gods to which the pantheon had been reduced. So uh, the Israelites come back into the land of Israel and they develop this 
uh, further and they focus on a single God. But somehow this God has to somehow incorporate the elements of our man and the Muhammad Mazda. Because bad stuff is, keeps happening. So how do you, how do you explain the bad stuff? And so there are all kinds of kind of uh, mental and spiritual gymnastics to try to figure out how do we account for the problem of evil. If, if God is all loving, you know, how come he's a genocidal maniac sometimes? And how come he demands this constant animal sacrifice every morning, every night, every Sabbath, every full moon, that he wants to slaughter all these animals? So it's like you have to try to account somehow for the arimanic impulse within individual human beings and within the collective, you know, whether the collective be a national group, you know, or a kind of a, a, linguist, a linguistic group or even the global species. How do you come for the fact that, you know, bad things happen and that people are fine? So I, I believe that I, I use the, the image sometimes of a jigsaw puzzle. If you take a jigsaw puzzle, you know, and you put, turn, tumble all the pieces out onto the table for the first time, you know, they're, some of them are upside down. So all you see is brown cardboard. So the first thing is you have to turn them all right side up. So the color side is up. And then in order to assemble it, you've got a few clues. The first one is, you got a picture on the box that's telling you what the finished product's going to look like. And then you've got the contours of the pieces. Some pieces obviously fit together because of their contours. And the other pieces, the colors will match properly. So you're looking at coloration, you're looking at configuration, and you're looking at the, color, uh, the picture on the box. And doing that process, you're trying to create the, the jigsaw puzzle. But almost inevitably, at some stage, you're going to reach an impasse where there's nine or ten holes in the, on the table. And there's 45 pieces left over on the side. And no matter where you put the pieces, they don't fit. You try every single piece in every finger hole, and it won't work. And then you come to the offer realization, ah, damn it. I obviously put some of the pieces in the wrong position. The contours looked right, but the colors didn't really match, but I forced them in there anyway. And if I continue to put the other pieces in, I'm going to get a lumpy jigsaw puzzle. And so I disassemble some of the pre-existing work I've done, and then put some of the extra pieces in there, and finally I'll get the correct configuration. Now, I think that's what life is like. The initial jigsaw puzzle did not come in a crumpled form. It was not meant to be a sum and assembled in a way in which there are holes in the text. It was meant to give you a perfect picture, and the picture on the box is the face of God. But we who are assembling it I create the mistakes. Now, how do you account for the mistake-making? It's the kind of the human inability to be fully divine. Every single yeah. case, you know, we're God stuff, we're God stuff operating out of a tiny little laptop. And we can't grab yeah. it out. And so we have to try to make, do it the best we can. And we're going to make mistakes. And one of the pieces that allows us to make mistakes is the exercise of free will. Free will is maybe the single most important gift of self-awareness, but is the single dangerous gift of self-awareness. Because I can make uh, uh, decisions uh, for greed or decisions for love. Now, I believe every little baby, every, every one of us is born if, you know, um, service is on a spectrum from service to self, I'm going to call it A Street, to service to others, I'm going to call it B Street. Every one of us is born at A Street. As little infants, we have to be narcissists. We have to look at number one, otherwise we would not survive infancy. We need to... We need milk and we need mother and we need cuddling and we need love and we need attention. And we have to be the total focus 24-7. Now at some stage as we're growing, <clears throat> we need to be able to shift our focus, our center of gravity along that line until we reach the 50% mark. 
<coughs> and now we're interested in service to others, compassion, you know, reaching out, the Mother Teresa in the world. Until finally, as fully aligned beings and fully enlightened beings, we're in total service to other because we realize the other is the self. There's only one of us. There's only just God articulating yourself in many, many different guises. And so now most of us get stuck somewhere between the 50% mark. So we're going to make choices that create greed. And therefore, I'm going to create violence in order to kind of feed my greed and to protect my stash or whatever. And that's going to be global situations. Now, thus is birthed the Arimanic impulse out of pure light. It did not come from God in the sense that God ordained it, you know, to test us. Is that we were given all the pieces we needed and we were given free will so we could become like the little child in age who wants to feed himself. And he's hitting mommy's hand. Mommy's trying to feed him with a spoon. He says, no, me. You want to put the food in his own mouth. And he's going to get it all over his and all over the floor. But how else is he going to? So mother indulges him and allows him to make a mess. So God indulges us and allows us to make a mess. And part of making mess is the creation of actually an entity and an energy or a tulpa that we might call Ahriman. Now, for some people, the Ahrimanic impulse is the totality of their psychic awareness. I know they're the warmongers. That's all they see, greed and, and war. Uh, but eventually, every one of us is going to get there. So another metaphor, then I'll hand back to you again. There's a beautiful poem I have it on my wall here called The Touch of the Master's Hand. Have you ever come across it? No. It's a story of um, an auction. A house is being auctioned, and all the kind of the artifacts in the household are being auctioned off. And there's a big crowd inside the house, and the auctioneer says, you know, what am I bid for this uh, desk? You know, $250, $250, $260, $275, $300. And it comes out to one, there's only one artifact left, an old battered violin. And he picks it up, and there's kind of a, the bow looks in terrible condition, and the, and, the, and the strings are all out of shape. And he says... <laughs> How do I bid for this old violin? Two dollars? Three dollars? Three dollars going once? Three dollars going twice? And all of a sudden, an old man walks up from the back. He says, can you give me the old violin for a moment? And the auctioneer hands him the violin. And the old man does it down. And he tunes the strings. And he cracks the ball. And he starts playing. And there's dead silence in the room. And at the end of the music, he hands it back to the auctioneer and walks out of the room. And the auctioneer picks up what he says, what am I bid for this auction, for this violin? $2,000, $3,000, $3,000 going once. And the crowd said, what made the difference from $2 to $2,000? And the auctioneer said, it was the touch of the master's hand. Yes. The, the, the old man did to the violin what the violin was built to do. Produce absolute beautiful music. In the, in the hand of a, of a, of a, an amateur, it will produce cacophony. Now, every life is a violin gifted us by God. We're meant to produce a symphony of sound, but we're not good at it and we're not interested in practicing it. So there's this other cacophony and we're part of an orchestra in which nobody is listening to anybody else. So the bass is out of tune with the guitar, with the, the violin, with the concert tunes, whatever. Everybody's doing their own shtick and it's utter cacophony. But it wasn't meant to be. All of these instruments were built to create symphony. So it's the musician that have to figure out the, what am I doing or what am I not doing properly in order to produce music. And so every man 
is the kind of the selfish impulse which won't allow me to practice love and instead they kind of default into uh, greed and personal looking out for me. Yeah, beautifully put. I I love that the way you built up to ultimately what Araman is and represents because it doesn't just give us a sort of a dictionary description. It gives us the progressive development, the the living flow of the challenge of free will and the responsibility that comes with making choices, whether you're conscious or unconscious. I describe choice as an arrow. And I say to my student, if you've got a bow and an arrow, once you release the arrow, can you call it back? Can you run fast enough to catch it before it hits the wrong target and you kill your mother instead of the deer because you're drunk? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, everybody admits once you release the arrow, that's it. And I think free will comes with a tremendous amount of responsibility. And people often ask me, do you think we have free will? I say yes and no. You have free will once you've healed your programming and you actually are thinking and acting for yourself and you understand what love is. Nice. Until then, you are just a train on railroad tracks. And all you can do is look at all the places you want to go, but you cannot get off the tracks. So free will is something you have to earn. And when you earn it, the steering wheel shows up in the train and the tracks disappear and you have wheels <laughs> or wings. You know, eventually you have wings, right? Yes, I love it. Um, one of the best Christian books I've ever read was called The Mental Health Ministry of the Local Church. It's right here. Yeah, you mentioned that in an email. I had never heard of this. Well, interestingly enough, I got the test out of this book from the same institute you got your degree in transpersonal psychology by my student. He emailed me one day and he said, Paul, you're not going to believe this because he, you know, he's been through my training. Right. He goes, look at this test they gave us to use with our psychology patients and clients on whether a religion is mentally healthy or not. He goes, this sounds like it came right out of your teachings. And I'm like, holy shit. I, it took me a lot of work to track it down because he just gave me the test, which was just written up. Okay. And, the, and, and so the reference that was on the test couldn't be found anywhere. So I did research and research and research. And finally, I found an article by some obscure Christian website where the guy was talking about his relationship with Clinbell and said that the first edition of the book had the name changed, uh, and then it came out as this. And so it was something else, and then it became the, the mental health ministry of the church. So it took me a lot of work to track this book down. And when I read it, I'm like, this guy was one of the most healthy Christians that walked the planet. And interestingly enough, of course, he was a psychologist who was very aligned with Jung and studied Jung heavily. Brilliant. So there's, there's a series questions in here on how to determine if a religion is mentally healthy and you know we we've talked enough about why that's important i would love to hear from you sean what your thoughts are what's a basic outline for you on what makes a religion mentally healthy i would say firstly to kind of reiterate a little bit what I said earlier, it has to be a community of prophets. And as I said, the prophet's function is to call the group back into alignment with its real purpose, its real mission. 
is to prevent the probable future uh, of inquisitions and dogma. So a healthy religion always will encourage a, a kind of a bilateral or reciprocal prophet, prophecy that the community is challenging the, the members and the members are challenging the community. I think I had a, a system in Kenya. I set up lots of different little uh, communities over my 14 years there. And I used, uh, I created a kind of a mantra in Swahili that says uh, a community should have three facets. Kuji uh, Tegamea, which means self-reliance. Kuji Tumukia, which means self-ministering. And Kuji Aneza means self-propagating. Not in the sense of, you know, kind of proselytizing, but if you're doing something really well, yeah, other people want to kind of, uh, 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 kind of imitate that. So self-reliance is that a community should be able to meet all, you know, should be independent of all uh, uh, on its own. You know, that they're not dependent on handouts from the government or get handouts from kind of uh, the Vatican to support a particular uh, regiment. So uh, self-reliance in all facets. A healthy community needs to be self-reliant. It needs to be self-ministering. So whatever we needs arise in the community, there have to be people within the community uh, who volunteer to address those needs. So I think ministry, whether it's a priest, a reader, you know, a healer, a bishop, whatever what you want to call it, it goes through the following stages. Firstly, there's a need in the community. Secondly, there's a volunteer who says, you know, I, I, I'll try to answer that need. Thirdly, the person is given the training necessary to do it. And fourthly, the person is commissioned by the community to act in that capacity on its, ha on its uh, behalf. And so, kuji tumakia then means self-ministering, whether it's financial needs, whether it's medical needs, whether it's agricultural needs, whether it's liturgical needs, you know, whether it's uh, research needs. Every community needs to become uh, self-ministering, and then self-promoting in the sense that if it's doing something good, you know, it should be reaching out to other people like like neurons on a on a global brain, so that they're learning from each other. And so I'm learning from another community, oh, uh, we could do this while we're doing a little bit better, or there's something we're not doing that they are doing, or they're learning from us, oh, we never thought about doing that. So a community needs to be a neuron on a, on a, on a, a network, you know, kind of a neuronal network that we're learning from each other, independent in the sense that each group is totally responsible for answering its own needs, but that we're sharing data and insights with each other at the same time, and that we constantly change leadership within the group, that there's not a self-appointed oligarchy, you know, who rule forever and never amend, you know, but that there's a constant, uh, either through a voting system or whatever, that leadership is, is changed, as long as a, a person has the, the kind of necessary ability to act in a particular capacity, they should be given a chance to do so, so that we don't get hardened, like term limits in a sense, uh, for the leadership of community. So there'd be some of the elements. That's great. Hi, everybody. Hope you're enjoying the show. I thought I'd take a minute to sing you a little song. Dr. Quiet, she is yin. Know how she loves to bring energy in. She teaches you how to rest so your energy is always at its best. Hey! And I want to tell you a little secret. You know how I support Dr. Quiet? I use Organifi Gold, and it does some magic to help you sleep deeper and restore better so you can get up and be a freedom fighter first thing in the morning and all through the day. And I got Drew Canoli, who created the product right here, right now, to tell us why it works so well. Drew, what's so unique about Organifi Gold except the fact that my kids won't stop asking for it? I love the song. 
Thank you. And I think if we were DJing this, we would do Rishi. Because Rishi, full spectrum, eight to one, beta glucans knock you out. The queen of mushroom. Rishi is one of the most powerful things we can put in our body, especially at night. Helps restore, revitalize. Great for the liver. Yeah. So while we sleep, not only are we restoring and repairing the cells, but we're detoxing in the most effective way possible. Yes. And it doesn't have to taste bad. In fact, it could be something you crave. Yeah. And that's Organifi Gold. It tastes like Autumn had a baby with a marshmallow. Every time I have it, it just knocks me out. I've literally tracked it with my whoop, my aura ring, yeah. and it adds another hour to an hour and a half of deep sleep. That's great. Ram and deep every single night. You know what's also really cool? Rishi is a wise man. Mm. It's not only the name of a mushroom, but a Rishi is a wise man. Oh, true story. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. It's absolutely true. I'm not so, pulling your leg. And how much wisdom have you and I gained from night school? A Dream lot time. of wisdom. Yep. Yes, and you gain a lot when you can't sleep. You go, what am I doing wrong? And how do I get it fixed up? So, hey, you know, one time when I was visiting you at your house, you made me a gold, Organifi Gold as a hot tea, and I'd never realized you could make it hot. It's the best way. And I was like blown away. I'm like, wow, this is incredibly good. It tastes like dessert. Mm -hmm. But it, unlike most sweet things, if you take sweet stuff at night you can't sleep very well and it jacks you up but this stuff was just so relaxing and so amazing i was like wow this is incredible and i know you're allergic to coconut yeah right so but what i like to do and this is when i'm being bad you see there's a much bigger cannoli than the cannoli you see today exactly. I, I would eat ice cream and all kinds of comfort food because i'm from michigan uh -huh. but one thing that put my cravings in check i take a little cocoa whip yeah. I put it on top of this oh, that's golden nice. tea okay it is the best drink yeah. at night you could ever have it's amazing yeah. I'm intolerant. I'm not allergic. So I did That's try it, it. It just makes me feel stressed, but I found that, you know, if I don't overdo it, I'm good to go. Mm -hmm. So I'm really excited to have everybody try Organifi Gold because we all need to sleep deep and pay attention to what our soul tells us while we dream so we can work together to mm. make this world a beautiful place for everybody and get our freedom back and get rid of the toxins in the government and other things we need to do. So it starts with good nutrition. Go to Organifi.com, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com and get your Organifi Gold. And while you're there, use the code CHEK20 in all caps to get your 20% discount because we want you on our freedom fighting team right now. Love you guys. Enjoy Organifi Gold. I got to share something with you. Sure. I I'm clairvoyant. And there's an angel that's been standing behind you for quite some time. And it's very wild because every time I look at you, I see this angel. And I'm having a hard time deciding what I want to focus on, you or this angel. And it's, uh, it's, it's very, I don't know enough of the names of all the different angels to say, oh, it's Michael or Gabriel or whatever. But you, you have this angelic being standing right behind you. And it, it's kind of like, I'm just, who, who, who am I talking to here? <laughs> Give me a look. Sean or the, yeah, yeah. It, 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 the, the angel just went like this like almost like namaste but with no hands just like <laughs> nodding thank you thank you for the hug sean namaste to you. Thank, yeah. thank you well i you know some people might think i'm weird but those that have been around me know that i do that quite regularly and they find out in their own special way that it was real that's brilliant that's brilliant yeah it can it can be an angel. It could be a 
deceased loved one bringing a message that I'm supposed to give to them or something like that. These kinds of things happen. I don't try to make them happen. I just, my philosophy is if it shows up, I, I made an agreement with my soul because after several, a couple of years of working with Master Fong Ha, who's a master of Tai Chi and Qigong, I, I did Tai Chi uh, daily for 18 plus years. Wow. And, uh, but after a couple of years with him, my clairvoyance, clairsentience, clair, all my voyances got so strong that I, I could hardly take the pain because anytime I went to an airport or anywhere in public, I was just seeing how seriously traumatized and broken people were. And I just felt, how am I going to help all these people? So it made me very sad. And I said to my soul, please don't show me anything unless you want me to intervene, interact, mention something or be involved because it's just too painful for me to see what everybody's carrying. Yes. And yes. so my, my point is I only share these things when they show up. I, it's a risk on a podcast because lots of people are going, okay, I, now I really know Paul Chick's absolutely <laughs> fucking loopy. But uh, the reality of it is, is I'm not too worried about what they think I'm more interested in just letting you know that there's a high vibration in your field and it's present with you. Thanks. Thanks. It's lovely to hear that. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for letting me share. Um, one thing we've used a lot is the word spiritual. I, I personally, my students ask me all the time, Paul, what does it mean to be spiritual or what is spirituality? And I, I tell them spirituality is the process of connecting to a progressively greater whole. As a person grows spiritually, they go from an I-centered being to a we-centered person to an all-centered or earth-centered to a cosmos-centered, and then ultimately to being centered in that which can't be described but is source itself or unconditional love. And I say a spiritual person is a person who takes responsibility for what they create moment to moment in their life. They don't ask mommy and daddy to bail them out. They, they, they don't lie or cheat. They just realize that they need to give whoever they need to forgive or, or ask for forgiveness for. And they also need to be conscious that that isn't the way you want to handle the, yourself in the next opportunity that shows up like that. In other words, you know, if you punch somebody in the face because you think he was flirting with your girlfriend, but you find out from your girlfriend, it wasn't true. You better go back and say, you're sorry. And the next time you think he's flirting with your girlfriend, you better say, hey, are you flirting with my girlfriend? And if he says no, don't punch him. If he says yes, then you can decide if you want to punch him or not. Um, I mean, at least that's part, that's, the more spiritual person figures other ways out, but I'm kind of having fun with it. But I, I would just love to hear what, what is your conception of spirituality versus non-spirituality or religion? And how would you describe somebody who lives spiritually versus the concept of spirituality, but someone who is truly spiritual? <clears throat> Great question, Bob. Um, so, I, I really believe, and again, you put this in your email, so I'm feeding back to you some, some of your own insights here. Um, all the great avatars tell us that um, the essence of, of living in spirit is some form of self-awareness. So you have Socrates saying, 
the unexamined life is not worth living. Yeah, or man know thyself. Yeah, or Jesus Christ saying, if the householder knew at what stage the thief was going to break in and steal, he wouldn't go to sleep. Or Gautama Siddhartha would call himself Buddha, which means I am awake. And so the, the first the most important thing is we have to create a cosmology that reflects being fully awake. And I think every cosmology uh, should do four things for us. If I figured out what life is about, it should make my heart sing. It should. Yes. Yeah. It should also stretch me out of my comfort zone because I keep having new experiences, just as you, as you mentioned. How am I going to harvest this situation for spiritual evolution? So it has to make my heart sing. It has to stretch me as well. It has to be unique in the sense that you are a unique articulation of source and nobody else in the history of the world has been Paul Cech. And so, or will be, or will be Paul Cech. And so you have to create a cosmology which reflects that reality as well. Now, when we're building a cosmology, and I suggest to people, there are four basic questions that we need to ask to develop a cosmology and a spirituality. The first one is, who do I think God is? Is God some bearded guy in the, in the sky who gets really angry, you know, and wipes out the whole planet? What do you mean when you say God? That's the first question to ask myself. The second one is, who do I think I am? Am I uh, just the physical spacers? Am I my intellect? Am I my ideas? Am I my relationships? Am I my profession? Who am I? Now, my answer to that is, I'm a spirit in a spacesuit. The third question is, what do I mean when I say neighbor? Is neighbor the guy at the other side of the white picket fence? Is neighbor the guy who thinks the way I think? Or what do I mean by neighbor? And fourthly, what is my mission? What did I come down here to do? Now, I think that personal cosmology is the core of a spirituality. Addressing those four questions. The truly spiritual person is the person who spends quality time, you know, meditating on, researching, reading, thinking, talking about those four basic questions and all the kind of collateral questions that rise from it. And that gives rise then to three other words, um, perfection, happiness, and enlightenment. For me, perfection is being committed to the mission for which I incarnated, no matter how many times I fall. No matter how many times I fail to live up, I pick myself up again and try again. It's like the little echo. So along, along the lines of Dharma then. Exactly. Along the lines of Dharma. So perfection consists in being totally committed to the purpose for which I incarnated. And uh, the word that's used actually in the New Testament is written in Greek, is the word telos, from which we get uh, teleology in English. And teleology to be attracted toward a goal. And so I and that we're, we're products of the future as much as we're products of the past. The goals I set myself influence who I am right today. And so perfection is teleological. It's been driven teleologically by my goals and what I think my purpose is. So perfection then is being committed to doing that no matter how many times I, I fall. Happiness is being in alignment with that purpose, even if it's done temporarily. You know, I managed to do it for a week at a time. I'm in total alignment with my mission. Then I'm a really happy camper. That's real happiness. Happiness is not pleasure. Happiness is not just passing joy. Happiness is being in alignment with the mission. And I love that. Yeah. And enlightenment is being in uh, permanent alignment with the mission. So that's a perennially happy camper. Not because life is going the way they want life to go, but because he's reached a place where he's in perfect alignment with the which he came down.
And so we step ourselves from perfection to happiness, you know, to enlightenment. So for me, that's the course of spirituality. And what, what rises in me as you say that, I give an, I get an image of a tree that's deeply rooted like the tree of life. So the enlightened person is rooted in source consciousness or the awareness of unconditional love as the authentic source from which we come so that that tree is not an easy one to blow down because it's able to see both the fallacy, the myth, the illusion, but the beauty, the good, and the truth in any situation, no matter how ugly it gets. Is that a fair observation? It's perfect. I love your image because when you, you know absolutely well that, you know, from many, many kinds of trees, the extent of the root system is kind of almost like a mirror image of the extent of the branches system above, as above, so below, as above, so below. And so when you think about it, the root system, our source, is feeding uh, the entire tree, including the twigs and the branches and the leaves. But the leaves are feeding the roots through photosynthesis. It's gathering chlorophyll and it's feeding it right down to the root system. And so it's true that God sources feeding us incarnated beings. And it's equally true that us incarnated beings are feeding source by the experiences we're having of sunlight and incarnation. So it's again, the kind of, um, it's as above being below. It's a, it's like it's symmetrical about the, the ground. The ground is like the mirror and, and uh, above it is symmetrical what lies below it. So source and manifestation are symmetrically grounded in the mirror of incarnation. Love it. A couple of things came up that I want to touch base with you on. Your cosmology, which, by the way, for the listeners, there's a whole chapter in here on it. It's absolutely beautiful. I was reading it this morning. Absolutely love it. Um, But interestingly, as you were describing the the structure of the cosmology, the things that we have to look at and, and ask the questions we have to ask, it was almost identical to the four functions of myth assigned by Joseph Campbell. I love it. I Have love you ever it. been aware of no. that? Yeah, well, no. Thank you for bringing it to my attention. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, so I'll try to remember them. The first function is to induce a sense of magic, mystery, and awe at life that sustains you. Uh, the, ne- the next function of the myth is to establish proprietary rights and wrongs so you know who how to engage your own people and any perceived enemy the third function is psychological the myth has to carry you through the stages of life from birth to childhood to um, middle age to maturation to old age and death and the final function of a myth is um it's very similar to the first one in that it has to tie the whole story together to make meaning. Um, I can't remember exactly the wording on the fourth function, but really when I was listening to your questions and how you build your own cosmology, I'm like, that's pretty much how you build a myth, which I didn't write this in the outline, but, you know, because you're so exciting, I I have to let go of order and structure to dialogue. And that's why I love, you know, David Bohm talked about how dialogue was much more important than discussing things, because when you have a dialogue, you 
like you said earlier, you say a word orange and then we improvise on it. A dialogue is, is you know, we start talking and we just see where it goes exactly. in the spirit of sharing love and, and, and the most wisdom we can conjure up. I was going to talk about myth with you for a second. You know, I, I meditate on these things deeply. I've, I've spent years in contemplative meditation to try to get answers from questions that I've had, such as what is love? What is God? Why are we here? Who am I? You know, literally years. And I have notebooks and I'm constantly asking my soul to guide me. And I even do plant medicine ceremonies specifically to go after these deep questions. And um, I found that helpful too, if it's done skillfully. And um, in my investigations, I found that God cannot possibly be thinking creation into existence because thinking is a duality. One is a unity and unconditional love can only be represented by zero. So actually the only thing unconditional love can do is dream itself into existence. And what my soul showed me is that the act of God looking into itself to create relationship creates mind because whenever there's two points of information, I like um, Dr. Dan Siegel's definition of mind. Mind is an embodied and relational process that regulates the flow of energy and information. So mm -hmm. once any two sentient points of consciousness begin to share information, there's a mind. But the point I'm making is there's no actors in the dream until God dreams it into existence. And, and the dream, interestingly, minds itself. Yes. Right. Yes. Isn't that just like the, the reason I'm bringing that up is because myth actually is really our dreams. Yes. It's the story of our dreams and and what we minded them with, how we minded our dreams. Just like you talked about minding the fire for 300 years, which the Hindus do as the, holding the spirit of Agni. But once we're it's like once we're in a dream. We usually wake up and go, oh, my God, I was in a dream. But once we get lucid in the dream, we start participating in the dream. And that's when we start minding the dream. You, you see a dragon trying to chase you and eat you. And you wake up in the dream and you say, listen, Mr. Dragon, I'm just as real and unreal as you. So you can eat me if you want, but I'll just pop up at the other side of you. So you might as well sit down and have a coffee with me and let's figure out how to do something intelligent. Now you're minding the dream. And that's what it means to be a co-creator in my philosophy. Once you've been minding the dream, then you're saying, well, look, the world's going to hell in a handbasket right now. How can I add some beauty to it? That's minding the dream. Because a lot of these people are having a nightmare right now. Yes, exactly. Right? They're, they're, they are sleepwalking. And those are the people that were zombies in your three categories, right? They're sleepwalking. And so... Part of what we're doing is mind, reminding the dream and saying, hey, wake up. Guess what? You're, you're, you're having an aromonic dream, but there is other ways to dream. And, and all you got to do is wake up to the possibilities and look around you and let's dream bigger together. The, the other thing I wanted to bring up, thank you, is have you ever read the book Bible as Dream by Murray Stein? No, never heard of it. Well, you know, he's the president of the Zurich Union Association. He has been for many, many years. He's written probably 30 books. I've read, 
I've read probably 20 of his books. His book, Bible as Dream, is fantastic because he goes through the Bible, uses Jungian psychology and Jungian dream analysis to tell you what these Bible passages are saying if you look at it as a Jungian psychologist. And I think every Christian should read that book because it really... Yeah, interesting you should say that because I was telling you that it was um, a Jungian analyst and an Episcopalian priest, John Sanford, whom I wrote to when I wanted to come to the States. Right. And one of the books was uh, Dreams, God's Forgotten Language, was the title to the book. So wow. The same notion. Yeah. I, 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 Dreams, God's Forgotten Language. I'm going to find that book. Yeah, Dreams, God's Forgotten Language. I'm writing it down. What's the author's name? Yeah, I do. it's either John Sanford, S-A-N-F-O-R-D, or there was another Episcopalian priest, a buddy of his, who wrote on the same topic. But I'm sure if you put the title in, it's either Sanford, I'm blocking who the other, the other author was. Well, I'll look for it. If I can't find it, I'm going to be a pain in your ass and call you and say, Sean, I need your help to find this book. <laughs> so to go back to the dream motive, I'm totally on board with you there. And that's why, you know, I, I created this little mantra years ago that, that life itself is a dream that the ego is having and that the ego is a dream the soul is having and the soul is a dream that spirit is having and spirit is a dream that God is having. So ultimately it's a dream. And as you say, when you become lucid in a dream, uh, you realize, you know, if you can take control of it during the dream stage and you wake up and realize this too is a dream, it means you can take control of this alleged waking dream. Yes. But harvest what's happening. Not that you can change the behavior of other people necessarily but that you can harvest everything you're encountering. You know, For there's a great story that Jesus tells. He's the master of the paradox. He tells this story about a very rich man who had a steward who was in charge of all his property. And he finds out that the steward is embezzling his funds. So he calls him and he says, it's been brought to my attention that you've been embezzling in my property. So I need to see the books. So the good thing, holy God, what am I going to do now? I'm too old to kind of dig. I'm too ashamed to beg. <clears throat> what are we going to do? So he starts calling in his master's debtors. He says to one guy, Michael, what do you owe my master? A hundred uh, bushels of wheat. Here's your bill, make it 80. What do you owe my master? 50 gallons of wine. Here's your bill, make it 30. And then Jesus said a very strange thing. He said, the master praised the unjust steward insofar as he had acted wisely because the children of this generation are wiser to their kind and the children of light. Now, is he praising this guy's duplicity? Obviously not. What he's saying is, here's a man who could turn every situation to his own economic advantage. When he was employed, he's embezzling. When he got fired, he went to bakshishi, he went to bribes. You know? So he's looking out for himself whether he got fired or not. And Christ is saying, you know, that's how you need to be. You should be able to turn every single life situation to your own spiritual advantage. There is no situation, no relationship, no event that happening in your life which you can't mind to become a more spiritual person if you have the particular, as you would say, the mind, if you mind the dream. Yeah, that's too true. I mean, that's that's the bullseye of the spirituality target right there. I mean, that's what it's all about. Um, you know, I, I tell people, look, if you're if you're not paying attention to how you're living, how you're loving and what you're creating, the pain teacher shows up to quicken consciousness. And, you know, look how many people's bodies have been sick for years and they've watched themselves gain weight year after year, but they keep doing the same stuff, keep eating, keep running to doctors, thinking the doctor's going to fix them. 
And I say, look, you know, the fastest way to be healthy is to quit bullshitting yourself. Pay attention to what you're doing. It's not hard at all. You know, you, you eat something that gives you a headache. Don't keep eating it. You drink something that makes you feel shitty. Don't keep doing it. Just, just because everybody else is torturing themselves doesn't mean you have to join the party. Exactly. You know? But it, it yeah. it's kind of a complex issue because, you know, a lot of people are medicating themselves and, and they're using these as their part of their neurotic behavior to dissipate the stress of what they can't reach because of the fear of the pain of it all. So I have empathy for them, but I also uh, think it's important that we, you know, to mind the dream, you got to wake up in it. So if you wake up in a body that's anorexic or, or obese, or you've got cancer and you can't believe you have cancer because you think you've been eating healthy. Like I've had a lot of vegetarians come to me very sick. And when the right. when and, and when I say, look, we really need to change your diet, and you really probably need some animal foods because I don't think you're getting enough protein. I've got your, I got about a hundred readouts on you here from all the hormone testing I did, and you look just like a vegetarian that's starving for protein. And then I have to listen to a lecture about how amazing vegetarianism is, and I say, I got a question: Why are you sitting at my office paying me seven hundred and fifty dollars an hour? if your philosophy is so healthy. Right. <laughs> so you've got to decide whether you're going to believe in an ism or you're going to pay attention to the God that's living in the body that you're isming and listen to yourselves because your body never lies, but philosophies can be very fallible. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Right on the money. So I'm going to go back to something you said a few minutes ago as well, Paul, and pick up a little bit on it. And that's the notion. Uh, I remember years and years ago, uh, somebody gave me a, a gift of a household plant, a kind of a flower set in the pot. And I have a, I have a reputation for being a disaster. You know, I always forget to water plants or I overwater them or I underwater them and they always die. <laughs> and so she gives me this plant and she said, it's very simple. Stick your finger in it. If it's wet, leave it alone. If it's dry, put water in it. That's and right. So it's <laughs> in my bedroom window. And about three weeks later, it's a bulb, so I can't see anything. It's underground. All of a sudden, this green stalk begins to come up, really, really beautiful. And then about a month later, a flower opens up on the top of it. There's a beautiful, like a trumpet flower, beautiful thing. And I began to realize it wasn't the bulb that created the stalk, and the stalk didn't create the flower. The stalk and the flower, in fact, are constituent elements of the bulb. And so it was simply manifesting its own nature. And the same thing is true, I believe, as you were saying, that God is simply manifesting. God is not creating that which is other to herself. God is manifesting self in various articulations as a flower or whatever. And so it's not that God goes into her uh, kind of uh, work, her workroom and says, um, what will I create today? Oh, I'm going to create elephants. What will I create tomorrow? Uh, mosquitoes. It's like everything emerges as a manifestation of source itself. It's not creative acts that she had to think about and plan and get the proper equipment. But just the nature of love is that it's going to articulate and manifest itself in various ways and then give the articulations uh, self-awareness and willpower to determine how they're going to interact with each other and how they're going to harvest their experiences uh, to realize it's an illusion in the sense that the only truth is love and the only truth is source. And so I talk about three levels. There's I call the role self, which is called Sean, the, the, play, the part I'm playing in this incarnation. And then there's the soul self, 
that eternal part that was never born and will never die, that volunteered to play the role of Sean in this incarnation. And then there's source self, where there is only God, of which everything is a manifestation. Yeah, I love it too. And, 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 you know, in your analogy or your description of the stages there, I would also say that there's a stage in the process where you wake up to what you are, you wake up to the fact that you can create, but you also wake up that you can create together with others and create something neither of you would have thought of by yourself. And I think that's where we're at in the world right now. I think it's time for us to hold hands, circle the globe and say, you know, I tell people, look, I don't care what your religion is. I don't care if you practice scientism. I don't care if you're pro-vaccine, anti-vaccine. None of that matters. But what does matter is we all need a healthy soil. We need clean water and we need air. And we've got to protect those resources because right now, what's going on under the disguise of COVID is something bigger. And all of that's being turned into commodities and sold and destroyed. And isn't it just a miracle that the same people that are behind the Great Reset own the major corporations that have been destroying this planet and poisoning our food and our water and ruining our education systems? So it's time for all of us to get real clear that the dream board is made of earth, water, fire, and air, and they have to be kept balanced, or we're all going to go back to the dream board, but not here and say, well, we fucked up another planet. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, I'm 100%, 100% behind you there, Paul. 100% behind you. Yeah, Absolutely. great. Yeah. I'm sure most of you are aware, even though you may not like the taste of organs, that organ meats are extremely important and good for you. And I've got great news for you. Paleo Valley makes an amazing grass-fed organ complex that's unique and better than anything I've ever found out there. So much better, I wanted you to hear right from Autumn Smith, its creator, exactly what you're going to get from their grass-fed organ complex. Autumn, get us informed on why we should be using your amazing organ complex. Okay. Well, like you said, organ meats are nature's multivitamins. And when we use them, we feel this energy and this stamina. And most people don't like the flavor. So what we did was we took grass-fed and finished organs like liver and heart and kidney, and we just put them into capsules so that you can get all the benefits, the beautiful benefits of organ meats without actually having to taste them, without liver burps, of course. And they're just freeze-dried. So again, they're not processed heavily in any way whatsoever, and they are sourced from American farmers using regenerative agricultural practices. And all you have to do to try it out is go to our website at paleovalley.com. That's P-A-L-E-O-V-A-L-L-E-Y.com. And you can use the code CHECK15, and that's lowercase c-h-e-k-15. And I sincerely hope you love it. So Sean, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. And as usual, you know, I have like, I don't know, 20 things to talk about with you, but that's okay. If you, you know, I would love to do more podcasts with you along the way. So if you're up for it, anything you want to talk about or you want to share, I got a lot to talk to you about. And I think it's important for people to hear your wisdom. So I want to support them by bringing as much of you as I can. And of course, we shared your website. We'll share whatever else you want to share. But one of the things that I think's part of a, the problem we have in the world, especially with religion. 
I don't think the average person's equipped with the imagination, the perception, or the creativity to even imagine God. And this is why I think we have all these limited views of God. God's going to burn you in hell. God doesn't want you to have any other gods. None of those things are godly characters. Um, you know, my question to you is if, if God is God, then, then God would have all the processing power there could possibly be. God would have the, all the speed of processing there could be, which would be infinite, infinite power, infinite speed, or even absolute power, infinite intelligence, infinite wisdom, infinite creativity. And we could keep going, right? And the Bible uses the word omni, yes. omnipresent, omniscient, yet, but the character of God in the Bible acts very uh, on non-omni, very <laughs> unidirectional. Yes. So, you know, how would things be different if we realized that what God is, is beyond anything we can imagine and, and is capable of managing the creation of maybe an infinite number of universes even, and that our soul can be alive on multiple dimensions. I mean, the experiences I've had, mystical experiences, meditative experiences, shamanic journeying experiences, have taught me that people's conception of reality is, is dangerously small. Um, so I'm, I'm just posting it to you. Do you think our conception of God is small? And what, would, what, what might change if we realized how unbelievably, wildly magnificent God is? I think that any God that we can't laugh at is far too small a God for us. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So let me kind of build a, me a metaphor then. Uh, imagine for a few minutes, Paul, we got a secular, a, a, a circular, you know, a high rise, you know, multi, multi story high rise. And the entrance is underground. You have to drive down underground. And the um, elevator shaft goes right up to the center of this, this tower. And when you step off the elevator, you find yourself in a circular corridor. And there are rooms of, uh, opening off this corridor. Let's say there's just, let's say there are eight rooms. So each room then, as you open the door, you're opening a small circular door. The back wall is going to be part of a circle. The side walls are going to be straight. So it's like a, a section of a, a pie in a sense. And you get off on the first floor and you go to room 101. And you see a mural painted on the back wall. But it's just stick figures done in kind of charcoal. You think, wow, interesting. And you think you've grokked the mural. And then you come out and you realize there's another door. You go into room 102. Yeah. And there's another section of the mural. You say, Oh my God. If I had only gone into room 101, I wouldn't have realized it's a much bigger mural than I reckoned. And then you go to room 103 and you go out to all them, down to room 108. And you see, finally, you've gotten the entire mural. You wouldn't have gotten it if you just stepped into room 101. But then you notice there's a second floor. I wonder what's in the second floor. You go up to the second floor. It's the same arrangement. You go to room 201. And now instead of just stick figures, you know, it's realistically drawn. It's black and white, but it's realistically drawn. And you see the very same mural in the air room, but it's much more realistically done. And then you go up to the third floor, you go to 301, and you find out that it's done in full color. The same mural. It's really vibrant. It's really alive. You go up to the fourth floor, 
and you're looking at a three-dimensional holographic image of the mural. It's interacting with you. And God only knows what's on, on, on you know, level four and five and six and seven and eight. Modern science and modern religion go into room 101. Yeah. And then they put <laughs> their cartographies of reality from room 101. And they're trying to persuade the rest of us, this is the thing, this is reality, this is the totality of reality. Now, the thing is, I think each of those rooms represent, in some senses, uh, states of states of consciousness. Maybe it's a, a waking state, a dreaming state, a plant medicine state, a meditation state, a non-dual state. They're all states of consciousness that are delivering different parts of the neural to us. And if we only stay in 101, we're not going to get that. When the, the, the levels are the stages of consciousness. So anybody can have... You can blunder into a state of consciousness, even a, a mystical state of consciousness, by mistake. But it takes work to go through it. The stages means you've got to kind of, kind of impregnate, you know, and kind of uh, fertilize your psyche. And so there's growth involved in that. Yeah, so each room is a state of consciousness, and each level is a stage of conscious evolution. Exactly. Exactly. And so in order to, to create, to be a kind of a, a proficient cartographer of reality, you need to go to all the rooms on all the levels before you think that you understand what's about. But what happens is religion goes into one room on the first floor and science goes into a different room on the first floor and they both create their model of reality and they tell you nothing else is real and if you believe in anything else, the atheists tell you you're a fool and the, and the religious people tell you you're going to go to hell. <laughs> And and um, if they keep believing that, they'll be right, and God will say, "Let's do that too." <laughs> and so you can no. you can add another room. <laughs> absolutely. absolutely, and so then uh, they create that model of reality, and they impose it on a group that follow them, and it becomes very very difficult to experience that which the culture tells you is not real. Only a real, a, a, a psycho not could do ayahuasca and have different experiences because you're breaking out of the system and saying, I'm going to try and see what happens. I'm going to face my demons and face my God or whatever it is. You know, And so unless you have the courage to visit the other rooms and the other levels, you're, you're being told there's only one reality. And if you have experiences outside that reality, you're crazy. You know, we have a medicine <laughs> the guy with the white coat. Yeah. You know what's sad? You know what's sad about that? One, it's, what's sad about that is it's just terribly true. Yeah. But what what for me, you know, my personality, I I go, okay, well, this room is really cool. I've learned a lot, but I got to know what the freaking hell is in that next room. And then yeah. I walk into the next room and I go, wow, this is amazing. I had no idea I could look at it this way or, you know, like the things you learn from studying electromagnetics. But then you study chemistry and you get a completely different view. Then you study cymatics and you go, wow, this is what yeah. sound looks like when it's frozen or when yeah. it's held in form and then you you know try some plant medicine you go wow i never knew I had such a beautiful relationship with trees and rocks they're all alive <laughs> so instead yeah. of defending the door i say i gotta sneak through the door <laughs> exactly exactly so in some senses the people in charge know that so they want to deny access to anything which creates an alter state of consciousness and that's why they're trying to get rid even of religion, because however bad religion was and however badly it got corrupted by subsequent uh, uh, leaders, it was keeping the notion of other dimensions alive. Yeah, 
Yeah. So when you, have no, you have no access to other dimensions in any form whatsoever, whether it's religion or whether it's the, the, a different meme or storytelling or whatever, when you have no access to it, then the reality becomes this dull, gray, frightening place. It's now the monkeypox. Now it's the war, war in Ukraine. You know, then it was COVID two years ago. You know, it's uh, the killer bees coming from Mexico. It's the Zika virus coming from South America. There's always some place to be afraid of. So batten down. Don't think outside the box. You know, daddy knows best. We'll do what you need. Whatever you need, we'll do for it. We'll tell you what your needs are. Yeah. We trade the security of tyranny for the responsibility of freedom. Which is a bad trade. <laughs> that's just a bad trade. Somebody, that's when you're supposed to have a father or a mentor to say, son or daughter, let me tell you, that's not the way. It's, it reminds me of I was when I was on vacation recently, as you know, we were visiting my son, Paul Jr., who's going to be 43 in September. And uh, we were playing chess. Right. And I don't I don't play chess very often. So just for fun, my son Mana, who's quite good at games, wanted to play chess with me. And he's recently beat one of our workers here in a game of chess and he's six. Yeah. So the guy was going, Oh my god, I got beat by Mana. You know, so Paul Jr., my my older son likes chess. So Paul Jr. was being Mana's coach. Okay. So the two of them the two of them are ganging up on me, but but the the story that that I'm talking about here goes like this. Mana makes a move. And as Mana's making the move, Paul Jr. says to him, that's not a good move, Mana. Don't put the piece down. Pull it back. He goes, you're not looking at the board. Look at the board. Now look at this guy here. If this guy can go over one and up three, look who is right there waiting for you. So Mana is, is like, you know, stuck in scientific materialism. He only knows one way to move those pieces. And his big brother is saying, now you need to think carefully because you're about to get beaten and daddy's going to consume your, your pieces, but you can take his. So the fun part of it was, is the two of them beat me. <laughs> my, my children outsmarted me. <laughs> I just want to open the floor for you to do two things, share whatever you think is important for people to hear, and then tell us where we can find more of your genius and websites, whatever you want to share. Okay, sir. I was asked a question a few weeks ago by somebody who emailed me, and I addressed it yesterday during our Zoom mass, and he wanted to know about the, the Moses archetype, Liberator, and Jesus. If Moses didn't exist, why isn't that Jesus used mosaic material? I refer to Moses. So I'm trying to talk about the notion of an archetype, particularly you want to know about the blood sacrifice. Why is it, you know, that you know, they have to shed blood? So I, I want to talk about archetype and complex. Sure. So I go back to Plato. Uh, and Plato talked about the ideal form versus the imperfect representation of a form. Yeah. So the archetype is like an ideal form and the complex is the flawed product. But they're interlocked with each other. So uh, an archetype is too complex as a gene is to an organism, it's like the organizing code of the organism, or it's like as a meme is to a culture, because it's the organizing motif. Now, if you take the notion of um, a mother complex, and most people would think, oh, a mother complex means that I have uh, hang-ups or problems with my mother, and that's not necessarily what it means. Every little infant is born with an imprinted mother archetype in its psyche, which tells it 
you're going to meet this person. There's going to be a breast. There's going to be a nipple. There's going to be a melt. There's going to be cuddling. There's going to be warmth. There's going to be love. There's going to be crooning. You're going to meet all these things. And so that archetype is emblazoned on the soul of the neonate. And then the neonate comes in and it meets an actual woman. And no matter how good she is, she's not going to be the perfect archetype. No, she's no. going to need to go to the bathroom sometimes or go shopping, whatever, or she has a kind of a, a bad temper or whatever, or she's not able to breastfeed the child or whatever. And so now what you have is you have a kind of an aggregation of associated experiences around the actual woman who is the child's mother. And that's what the complex is. Now, if she were perfect, if she were a perfect mother, the archetype and the complex would be would be absolute images of each other. But you're rarely going to get that happen. And so we have to distinguish between the fact that there's an ideal form of everything, even a circle. And Peter said there's an ideal circle someplace which is absolutely flawless, which means that every point on its circumference is equidistant from the center. But try drawing that, and you can't do it. Even if you have a protractor. You know, the kind of texture of the page or the micromuscular movements of your hand, it's not going to be a perfect circle. So the complex is never a perfect representation of the idea. Now, the Which, interesting thing is... I yeah. just want to interject if I could. Yeah. The necessity of that is that if the mother did perfectly match the archetype and there was no complex, there would be no way for God to experience itself through life because there would be no time. Perfection does not move. Right. So it paradoxically goes to the concept of dukkha in Buddhism, the necessary imbalance that gives us the experience, which is why we should realize that there's perfection in the imperfection that the complex instills in us, because that's how we grow toward the, the shall we say, the perfection of the archetype. That's precisely the case, Paul, because as I said, perfection is teleology. It's been attracted toward a goal. It does not mean a staleness, steel sinlessness. Perfection consists in being committed to the mission that came down there to learn. And I learn, you know, by it's interesting the word that's used in the uh, New Testament for sin. It's taken from archery. It means you shoot your arrow, you miss the target, but that gives you feedback, how to readjust your aim. And so perfection is a question of making mistakes and learning from mistakes or meeting less than ideal circumstances and learning from those. And so the thing is then, then, as you're building, for instance, ritual, or you're building even a culture around an archetype, it doesn't really matter whether the archetype is a fictional or factual, as long as it's inspirational. Yes. It's a myth, an archetype. It is to create, you know, a source of inspiration for the journey. And so in that system, the archetype is the ideal mission. If I came down and I were fully aligned with my purpose, I'd be living out the archetype implanted in my soul. But the complex is the incarnated version of the mission. So it's like the difference between my ideals and my values. The ideals are how I would perform if I were on top of my game. And my values are the compromises I make because of the life situations which I find myself. So there's this great dance between the archetype and the complex. And it's important for people to realize that a complex is not a hang up. A complex is simply the kind of the cluster of emotionally associated experiences around the archetype of actually meeting the manifestation of the of that particular archetype. Or yeah. you could say a, a complex is a guarantee that there's a process unfolding. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And the whole point is the processing of it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I went on yesterday, and I was talking about, for instance, the, uh, 
the archetype, that blood as an archetype of life, because they were talking about Jesus sacrifice. And what I'm saying is, you know, a woman's menstrual cycle is an archetype that she has the ability to conceive and carry and nurture and birth life. So uh, blood is an archetype of life, actually. And for the warrior, for the men among us, uh, the warrior is the one who is prepared to shed blood to protect life, whether it's to shed his own blood or the blood of the enemy figure. So it's, again, it's an archetype of life. And so we need to realize that, you know, throughout human history, we've understood blood to be the source of life, in a sense, uh, and an archetypal energy. And so uh, as we look at uh, the archetypes in our culture, we have to discriminate between what the pure archetype looks like and what the complex of incarnation is going to create from that. And obviously, the object of the exercise is in the course of enlightenment to start merging these two people. That my lived life experiences and the way in which I behave begins to mirror more and more closely the archetype of the ideal form of it. And the ideal form is God. And then... If I could add to that, I would say, you know, you're moving toward more toward the archetype and less toward the um, entanglement of the complex because you feel centered in yourself. There's a sense of. If I was to repeat that again tomorrow, my life would be okay. The way I the way I handled that relationship or the way I handled the challenge or the way I handled the attack on me or somebody criticizing me or belittling me or the way I managed myself when I hurt myself or when I got sick. So the point I'm making is we can be aware that we're maturing spiritually and disentangling ourselves with the complex when we feel at peace in our heart with how we have lived that moment. Is that fair to say? You got, got a precise point, because that's the definition of happiness then that I use. Happiness is that knowing that I'm in alignment with my purpose, you know, no matter what the vicissitudes of life are throwing at me. Yeah, yes. it's doing, I'm doing my best in every moment. That That's true happiness. And then it's like the final kind of metaphor. It's like a, a light switch, and it's not binary. It's not just on or off. It's a slider switch. You can slide, you get greater degrees of luminosity. And so enlightenment itself is a process in which you can be more or less enlightened. You can be fully enlightened, Buddha figure, if you get the switch all the way up. But every time you make a decision for love, you're sliding the switch a little bit nearer to greater luminosity. Yeah. yeah. And, and then the other thing, too, that's important in that regard from my long-term studies of consciousness, structure stages, states of consciousness, is that we we need to be honest with ourselves that we can be very enlightened maybe as a metaphysician, but very unenlightened with how to take care of our body. Or we could be enlightened as a musician, but but have a real hard time in personal relationships. I'm bringing that up because enlightenment is is a 360 degree process. We got to go to each of the rooms you spoke about and get wise in each of them and I think this is why in astrology, they talk about that we reincarnate through each of the signs of the Zodiac and we reincarnate in each of the world's great religions until we've lived and understood how to perceive life from the perspective of the 12 constellations and the world's great religions. And that gives us the time to mature into 
basically to use an alchemical perspective to mature out of the bondage of matter so the soul has enough conscious self-awareness that it can have a relationship and know itself without mass to identify itself. Absolutely. Right on. Absolutely right on. Yeah. And that for me is the reason why I believe so strongly in reincarnation. It is impossible to grok the human experience and to learn to love in a space of, unless you've been in all the different kinds of possible spaces that inhabit planet Earth. And I literally mean that. Literally from experience life as an oak tree to a bunny rabbit to a, a uh, an Irishman to a Zambian, you know, to an avatar, to an imbecile, uh, to a genius, to an athlete. Once you've experienced all, you haven't really grabbed what it is to try to learn to love in a space. Yeah, Yogananda says in his teachings, because my family, my family's, my mother was a self-realization. She was in the self-realization fellowship since I was twelve, so I was raised in the self-realization fellowship tradition. My mother was a Christian first, but then she joined the Self-Realization Fellowship, which is the greatest medicine that ever happened to our family. But um, Yogananda says, you reincarnate on average about 8 million times through the kingdom of nature before you get your first human body. He says, <laughs> it, he says if you knew how many souls were waiting for a human body, you would be dancing in the street even on your worst day just to have one. You know. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah. And, and that's the beauty of, of being able to see. That's like learning scripture from an enlightened person. You really get. Now, exactly. even if he's speaking in metaphor, it still makes a very important point. And it's a journey. It's, it's, there's no, if God is infinite and if God is unconditional, then there's no end to the journey. Absolutely. A, a journey, an infinitely long journey has no end and no beginning. It's like a circle. So, Sean, I have had too much fun with you, man. It's just like, I, I just am so grateful that I came across your work and, and I'm thankful for Regina Meredith because she's got a real eye for geniuses and she certainly hit the bullseye bringing you on. And um, I would just love it if you could share with people where to find your website and anything else you want to share as we close. And I will just say, I'm have an open invitation to have you on this podcast and I will love be more than excited to talk about things. If you want to come up with themes, we can anything you think that we can do together to help people through this world transition. I'm a hundred percent in. I would love because um, like you, I don't have anything like the same outreach you have, but I have the same purpose that you have, which is to try to be a voice in the wilderness in our times. So anywhere that I can kind of add my voice to the uh, the wake up call, I'm happy to do it. You know, and if you're willing to do it, your extraordinary kind of um, uh, outreach to kind of add another voice to what you've been saying so eloquently for so long, sign me up for it. Yeah, I'll be. We'll be in touch. So go ahead and let people know where to find you. The name of Sean's book, Sean. Uh, this is the only book I saw of yours on Amazon: Setting God Free, Moving Beyond the caricature we've created in our own image and it's in a stunning book it's got a picture of a dove uh either flying it looks like it's flying out of of a of a hand um do you have other books yes i've that's, that was my sixth book the first book i wrote actually was in swahili when i was living in kenya so i presume that's not available on amazon <laughs> uh, yeah 
The next one was called Spirits in Spacesuits. Oh, right. Okay. I think I did see that one somewhere. The third one is called Souls on Safari. The fourth one is called A Sensible God. The fourth one I actually wrote with uh, Mac, Mac, Mac McKay and Ralph Metzner. And it's oh, called, he's... Yeah. yeah. Master Great Guy. It's called, yeah. why, it's called Why What Your Life Is Telling You About, about Who You Are and Why You're Here. And then the most recent one is uh, Setting God Free, Moving Beyond the Caricature We've Created in Our Own Image. So there's six of them up there. If they go to my website, they'll see information on all, all six. Okay, good. I'm going to go look at those other ones because I'd like to have a Sean O'Leary collection in my library. I got one so far, so I'm going to keep building it up. Okay. And so your web URL again is? And my, my website is spiritsinspacesuits.com. And are you still doing any counseling for people or have you kind yeah, of moved yeah. past that? I, I, do, I do counseling now just two days a week um, on Wednesdays and Thursdays, so they can contact me through that website. And I do a Sunday Mass, three Sundays a week, Zoom Mass. Um, so if people contact me through my website, I'll put them in contact with our IT specialist who sends out the link for the, uh, the Zoom Mass every Sunday. All right. Well, if you think about it, please uh, have him put me on the list because I might have a chance sometime to just sit down and hang out with you as a, right. as a spectator because I, I just love your perspective on things. You you are a great guy to you've got the keys to lots of doors. So I, I I like to follow guys like you around and say, okay, Sean's found a door I didn't know about. I'm gonna go check out what's in there. So I'll just say thank you and and please keep just being you. My God, what a blessing! And I I have no choice, but nobody else would sign up for the part. <laughs> yeah, well, you did it good. You are doing it good, and I think. You know, I think that you've had so much honest life experience and you've been inside the church. You've been inside the Bible. I mean, I I love it because, you know, it takes a lot of time in life. You, you know, you can be smart when you're young, but it takes time to get wise. And you got to go through the grinder a bit, you know. And I know from your story and, and everything with the church and the getting kicked out of all these places that you've really engaged life fully. And I, I think that's what we're missing today. We we have a lack of elders. We have a lack of right. wise elders. And and I think right. that it's, you know, I'm I'll be 61 here in a few days. So I've been on the trail a while too. And I think that it's just sad that there's not more people our age, you know, uh out there helping younger people, you know, play chess better. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, it's been a privilege for me to meet you. And thank you so much for your, your charisma and your generosity and your sense of humor. I love that. Thank you. I, I'm grateful. And one day I hope I can come give you a big hug. So uh, I'm gonna, that's on my bucket list. I got to hug Sean O'Leary before I leave my, my physical <laughs> body. And then I'll hug you again on the other side. Amen, bro. <laughs> All right. So thank you to my sponsors. Uh, you guys, I love you. Um, my sponsors all are sustainable companies. They're organic. They're concerned about the world and they contribute to the world 
in many ways, including sponsoring my podcast. So anytime you buy from the sponsors, you're not only getting the best products I could possibly bring to you, you're supporting the podcast. So thank you very much. Thank you to all of you. I really appreciate the fact that if you're listening to me right now, then you must be in harmony with Sean and I. Either that or you've got a long list of complaints about these guys, and that's okay too, because at least you're paying attention. So thank you guys. Let's all hold hands and help make the world a better place. And remember when you're facing a challenge, just ask yourself the question, what would love do now? It's the simplest, but it's the one that'll grow you the most. And uh, if we don't grow together, then then we're we're certainly rotting together. So I just want to take a moment and say thank you to all of you. And I'll close by saying we are safe. We are home. We are whole. A whole great spirit. It is done. It is done. It is done. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Father Sean O'Larry. Visit Sean's website at spiritsinspacesuits.com where you can find information on past and future events and read and watch more from Sean. You can also follow him on Instagram at spiritsinspacesuits. Follow Paul on Instagram and TikTok at paul.check, on Twitter at paulcheck, or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash living4d with paulcheck. You can also watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com or visit the Czech Institute site at checkinstitute.com to find Paul's e-learning courses, advanced training programs, and learn more about the Czech Academy. You can read the show notes and find links to the resources mentioned in this episode at checkinstitute.com forward slash podcast. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a warm review at the top of the show page on Spotify or at the bottom of the show page if you are listening on Apple Podcasts.